Hi everyone, I'm Graham Sait, and I'd like to welcome you back to the first Nutrition Farming Podcast for 2023. Once again, it's a mammoth episode. There are several segments, all of them cram-packed with goodies. But I think this might be the last of this expanded format, so I guess I'd better explain. Look, I lead a kind of crazy, time-starved life, and it's, it's driving me mad that it's been so long between episodes. It takes a full week to research and record each of these 200-minute specials, and I just don't have a week spare. Okay, here come the excuses. Let's explain. I'm the co-founder, owner, and CEO of a company called Nutritech Solutions, or NTS. Now, we've developed and we manufacture the world's largest range of certified organic inputs, and we distribute into over 55 countries. But most of our clients are not actually certified organic. They're just simply farmers seeking to be more profitable while also increasing their sustainability, and herein lies our strength. Now, if you ever need any guidance along these lines, please don't hesitate to contact us. Just go to the website and we'll see if we can help you out. Actually, I'll take this moment to share a little more about NTS because I haven't really talked about it in previous podcasts in, in any depth. We were founded 30 years back. We've got five divisions and that includes a really vast agricultural range because it's called Nutritech Solutions and I was trying to develop a solution for everything. So there are multiple microbial inputs, there are humates, there are cutting-edge liquid fertilizers, there are biostimulants and so forth. We also have an innovative home garden range called the Life Force Home Garden Range. We have a human health range. We've got, of course, the all-important education division, and then there are our farms. Now, these farms have spawned their own product range under the Nutrition Farms banner. So it has a separate logo and so forth. I think we've got 10 products now in that range, and that includes our award-winning apple cider. And the farms, of course, also serve as research centres and demonstration sites for nutrition farming principles. Now, I'm involved in a constant stream of seminars, webinars, and Zoom consults, and I'm also working hard to try and finish my second book. And that's amidst responding to a huge number of emails due to the global success, I guess, of the podcast. Now, I've been without a personal assistant for the last, I think, four months, and I have to admit that I've really been struggling to fly solo. (laughs) This is starting to sound like a bit of a poor me rave, but I'm just trying to rationalise a change to the podcast format where it'll be shorter but more regular in future. I, I just want to get back to that regular monthly format. Okay, and the last of the long ones, I've introduced one small change, and this relates to my notorious humour segment. Now, the original concept here was not shock and horror. It was about trying to inject some humour into a pretty intense educational experience to try and get some oxygen flowing in your blood and in your brain. And it's occurred to me that it might serve this purpose perhaps more ably if I was to include that humour at the end of each segment rather than as a standalone segment midway through the podcast. So I hope you're okay with the change. So let's get started. First off, we're going to look at a productive nutrition farming set of tools. The first segment always in the six-part format. 
but this time we'll be talking about the trace mineral cobalt and we'll be talking about its unrealized potential. I think many of you will find this segment quite fascinating. I also suspect that many of you will be scratching your head in recognition that you've never ever considered the use of this mineral as part of a genuinely holistic nutrition program. And I think you'll soon agree that it's time that this neglect was addressed. We're going to be looking at cobalt in terms of its role in the soil, in soil life, and within the plant. Now what we find is that almost 50% of the soils that we test across multiple countries, 50% of those soils are lacking sufficient cobalt. We need two parts per million. We've often got half to one part per million. So it's a really common deficiency. So what does that mean, I hear you thinking? Well, let's begin by considering the roles of cobalt. Cobalt plays a really important role in the health and productivity of crops well, it also impacts soil life and it also really affects the root performance of legumes in particular. Now, perhaps the most important role of cobalt relates to its essential role in the formation of a nutrient called vitamin B12. Now, some of you may recognize the importance of this particular nutrient in human health, where exhaustion and anemia are just two of the outcomes when it's missing. But let's look here at why it's so important for plants and for soil microbes. B12 is a critical cofactor for creation of nitrogenase. That's the enzyme that nitrogen-fixing organisms like rhizobium and actinomycetes, called Frankia for example, use to pull nitrogen gas from the atmosphere and convert it to ammonium nitrogen in the soil. However, it's not just these organisms involved in your access to what I call the free gift. That's the 74,000 tonnes of nitrogen gas hovering above every hectare that I often speak about. See, there's free living nitrogen fixes like Azotobacter and even some of the bacillus strains like Bacillus subtilis and Bacillus amyloliquefaciens also fix nitrogen, so they're equally important. It's obviously a good thing if you can successfully harness this process to reduce your reliance upon increasing the expense of nitrogen fertilizers. And cobalt and B12 are major players in this process. In fact, the B12 link to nitrogen doesn't stop there. B12 is also a cofactor for the enzyme urease. Now, most of you probably understand that urea is converted to plant-available ammonium nitrogen by that enzyme, but often it's not understood that urease is equally important in grazing situations for converting animal urine, urine into usable nitrogen for the crop and, of course, the soil microbes. Now, understand the importance of this. If you're lacking cobalt and associated B12, you will simply not be seeing the full soil-building potential of intensive grazing. Now, plants do not produce B12. That's why so many vegetarians are deficient in B12. It's created using cobalt by soil bacteria and archaea. And in this context, cobalt becomes an important player for microbial health. Bacteria produce B12 in part to supply themselves with supplemental nitrogen through nitrogen fixation. And that end source is pretty important when 17% of your body is actually made from nitrogen. Of course, the plants amidst that microbial workforce also benefit from this ongoing nitrogen supply 
when nitrogen, of course, is their most abundant mineral component. The all-important formation of humus is also linked to cobalt and the, and the associated flow of nitrogen into the soil. And here we're talking about the carbon-to-nitrogen ratio, which is linked to the breakdown of organic matter. So nitrogen is required to create humus, and the better your access to the free gift, the better your humus formation. So what does cobalt do beyond this critically important role of nitrogen delivery? Well, it's a cofactor, along with zinc, and the formation of hormones called auxins. And these, of course, are the hormones that regulate root and shoot growth, and leaf size for that matter. And if auxin production is compromised, you're going to have a smaller solar panel and less production. I hope you're starting to get the picture here. If your supply of the most abundant mineral nitrogen is limited, and your auxin production is also substandard, then cobalt deficiency can lead to stunted growth, reduced crop yields, and impaired plant health. Now let's look more closely at some of the symptoms of cobalt shortage in your crop. Number one, chlorosis. Chlorosis, of course, is the pale colours and blotches, the stripes, that lack of sugar factories, and it can be a symptom of cobalt shortage. You'll see yellowing of young leaves and a general, sometimes a general yellowing of the, of the plant, especially in the tips and margins of leaves. Often you'll see misshapen or malformed leaves. The shortage can sometimes be linked to curling and cupping and, of course, a reduction in leaf size. You can see stunted growth is typically linked to a nitrogen shortage and hormonal disruption. And, of course, it will also lead to yield loss. Reduced seed production. Cobalt is involved in the development of reproductive tissues and a shortage can lead to reduced seed production and smaller seed size. Poor nodulation is a big one. A lack of nodules on legumes is a classic sign of cobalt deficiency because the legumes use cobalt and the process of building those nodules along with minerals like sulfur. So let's focus for a minute on seed production and seed size as that was part of one of the questions posed in the three questions segment, which is coming up next. So obviously from a timing perspective, it's apparent that Getting a little cobalt on the seed or in farrow is going to help to ensure good nodulation and nitrogen fixing in general. However, there's also some research suggesting benefits in both legumes and cereal crops with the use of cobalt sulfate as a foliar during seed formation, and that can boost both the number and the size of the seeds. So that's a pretty big thing. There are some really good studies Let's look at one relative to fava beans, for example, in an Egyptian study entitled The Effect of Cobalt Fertilizer on Growth, Yield and Nutrient Status of Fava Beans. The findings were simply amazing. In that study by Harler and Candle from the National Research Center, various rates were applied at various times. And here it was demonstrated that the most productive rate was the highest rate in that study, which involved 20 parts per million of cobalt. At that rate there was a whopping 217.74% increase over the control and protein levels increased by 47.82%. There was also an increase in nutrient density associated with cobalt treatment where most minerals increased and interestingly, iron levels decreased slightly. Now, this 20 part per million rate 
was an irrigation water, so it's not necessarily applicable to most dryland producers. So let's look at, at foliars or seed treatment rates, which are more applicable in dryland scenarios. So a guy called Raj in 1987 studied the effect of cobalt nitrate on pigeon pea and on peanut seed. And cobalt nitrate at the rate of 500 milligrams per kilogram of seed, which was about half a kilogram of cobalt nitrate per tonne of seed, that significantly increased plant height, the number of branches, the number of leaves, and the total dry matter and yield. Now, peanut seed treatment with cobalt nitrate at the same rate, followed by two foliar sprays before and after flowering at the rate of 500 milligrams per litre, that increased the plant height, the leaf number, and the total dry matter. So pod yield, shelling percentage, test weight, and harvest index harvest index all increased significantly. And that, that equates roughly to about 50 grams of cobalt nitrate and 100 litres of water. So not a lot. Sometimes it's actually easier for growers to access cobalt sulphate. So how do the application rates of these two forms compare? Well, there's a slight difference in the cobalt component in cobalt nitrate versus cobalt sulphate, but basically similar rates apply. Actually, in several studies, cobalt sulphate's been the most productive of the cobalt forms, particularly for foliars. So, so how and why is it working? It's important to understand the key plant processes that cobalt positively impacts to generate increases in pod numbers, cereal grain, and grain size, and cereal yield. So here we're looking at the link between cobalt and cytokinin production. So cobalt stimulates plant production of this natural hormone. And of course, cytokinins re regulate growth and the development of the plant, and cy cytokinins promote cell division and hence the increase in seed numbers and seed size. But this Hormone can also delay senescence. This can delay the aging of the crop, which can often result in greater yield outcomes. Now, one of the major benefits of kelp, for example, as a fertilizer, relates to the high cytokinins found in this input. So that can extend the crop, and it even works post-harvest to extend shelf life. Now, I'm guessing at this point that the fruit and vegetable growers are starting to sing, what about me? Well, it turns out that cobalt foliars can be wonderfully productive in most crops. Let's look at a couple of studies. Now, in one 2002 study by Singh and Agrez, they found that foliar applied cobalt sulfate at the rate of 200 milligrams per litre on mangoes resulted in significantly increased fruit set and retention. There were higher yields, there was higher bricks levels in the harvest, harvested fruit, and that application rate equates to 1 gram per 5 litres, 100 grams per 500 litres, and 250 grams in the 1,250 litres that's typically used on mango. So 250 grams of cobalt sulphate and 1,250 litres was the rate sprayed onto the mangoes. Now several Indian orchard studies have reported increased fruit retention, increased fruit quality, and increases in yield following cobalt foliars. Actually, at this point, I'd like to share an interesting study entitled The Effect of Cobalt and Some Vitamins as Foliar Application Treatments on Productivity and Quality of Williams Banana Cultivated, Cultivar. Sorry. And that was published in the Journal of Plant Production. Now, in this instance, a combination of cobalt sulfate, vitamin B12, and vitamin C. Now, interestingly, in our product, Triple Ten, we actually include cobalt sulfate, vitamin B12 and vitamin C as 
some of the 60 things that are in that quite remarkable formula. But in this study, a combination of cobalt sulfate, vitamin B12, and vitamin C produced banana bunch weight increases of over 60%. So it took me a long time to, to formulate triple 10, and I realized that it was a good inclusion to include quite good rates of B12 and vitamin C in there, along with actually several other vitamin B vitamins and a whole host of other things. So Triple Ten, it's available across North America via our Canadian distributors, who of course are Agriculture Solutions in Canada, and they also supply into the US uh, via our UK partners called New Generation Agriculture, and in Europe via our Dutch distributors who are called SoilTech. So you can source Triple Ten across large parts of the world. So let's look at a couple of cobalt considerations. Number one, iron displacement. Now it's interesting to note that nutrient density in the seed increased across the board in multiple studies, but in many instances, the only mineral that dropped was iron. And that relates to the fact that there can be competition between both iron and cobalt for uptake and utilization by the plant. So cobalt and iron are quite similar and their chemical properties, and they can occupy the same sites and plant metabolic pathways, and that can lead to that competition. So applied cobalt can actually displace iron from these metabolic pathways and decrease the overall iron content, and this effect can be more pronounced in certain crops, like wheat and legumes, for example. So basically, those crops have got a slightly higher demand for iron and they're more sensitive to changes in iron nutrition. So in that context, you know, you don't want to sort of give and then take it. It might be worth foliar spraying a little iron or even applying some humic acid, which tends to increase iron availability in the soil if you've got marginal iron and you intend to experiment with cobalt supplementation. So include a little bit of a foliar of iron to compensate for the the shutdown effect that can happen sometimes with cobalt for those more sensitive plants. So we were talking, as I mentioned, about wheat and legumes. So number two in our cobalt considerations, a cobalt accumulation in soil reserves. Now, legumes are noted cobalt accumulators, so it's possible to foliar spray cobalt on legumes, and when the crop residues are returned to the soil, that can help to gradually build soil reserves of cobalt. So if you foliar sprayed it on the legumes, it will eventually return to the soils because they accumulate and hold on to that cobalt and then that will return to the soil as they break down. Now number three, soil pH organic matter content and soil type can all affect the availability of cobalt. So what sort of conditions? Well, high soil pH reduces cobalt availability. Uh, organic matter can actually increase cobalt availability. So even humic acid can enhance cobalt availability. Clay soils tend to have higher cobalt levels compared to sandier soils, so that's just a few of the considerations. So in summary, I'm finding that a brief summary at the end of each segment can help with retention and understanding when basically you're drinking at the fire hose. So let's just summarise what we've just talked about. I first noted that, that almost 50% of the soils we test are deficient in cobalt, and then I attempted to describe the potential outcome of that shortage because cobalt plays a crucial role in the health and productivity of crops. It impacts soil life, it impacts root performance of legumes, and it's a critical cofactor in the formation of B12 and 
and B12 as a cofactor for nitrogenase, the enzyme that nitrogen-fixing organisms like Rhizobium, Actinomycetes, Azotobacter, some of the bacillus strains, they all use it to convert nitrogen gas from the atmosphere into ammonium nitrogen in the soil. And of course that process is really important to reduce our reliance on increasingly expensive nitrogen fertilizers. Now, additionally, just refreshing, uh, cobalt is a cofactor in the formation of auxins, and those are hormones that regulate root, shoot, and leaf size. So a cobalt shortage, stunted growth, reduced crop yields, and impaired plant health, and the symptoms of cobalt shortage were chlorosis, misshapen leaves, stunted growth, reduced seed production, and poor nodulation on legumes. And I also highlighted the importance of cobalt and seed production and seed size, and I provided some studies and some guidelines for productive application rates. Well, that's the nutrition farming segment for this episode. So, as I promised, let's have a little humour to loosen up before I answer the three questions for this month. So, my dad was a great man, but he had some anger issues. I'll never forget the time he came home and found me sitting in front of a raging fire. I guess it didn't help that we didn't have a fireplace. Actually, I'll never forget one of his visits. We'd been drinking coffee and chatting when he suddenly asked if if he could borrow a newspaper. And I thought, I'll bring him up to speed with modern communications. I said, Dad, this is the 21st century, mate. I don't waste my money on newspaper. No one does that anymore. You just read your news online. I'll tell you what, you can borrow my iPad if you like. Well, I'll tell you this, that spider never knew what hit him. Okay, let's move on. Once again, this season, I'm going to continue the popular Q&A segment called Three Questions. In this segment, I select and respond to the particular questions from you guys that I hope will offer most benefit to the most listeners. So the first question for this episode is from Germany. It's from a guy called Tobias Bonisch. Tobias is an agronomist who, whom I met uh, some years back when he was working in berry production in Queensland. He's since returned to Germany where he's now farming vegetables and he's also begun some consulting work. Here's the text from his email. Dear Graham, how's life? Happy 2023. I hope you're going to have a wonderful year, a year full of good people, healthy plants and a lot of fun in life. Last year, I was booked as a speaker at a management meeting for a large company. I really enjoyed the experience and they've asked me to return for more talks this year. My next topic is going to be more related to the environment than farming and I was thinking perhaps you could, re- you could give me some insight. I was hoping you might suggest five strategies for people to improve their environmental footprint on the planet. Things that every one of us could do without spending a lot of money. Something people might enjoy while reclaiming a sense of purpose and passion in a world filled with serious problems. I'm really curious to know what your answer will be. I'm hoping to provide step-by-step easily adopted processes to encourage an action plan. I really look forward to each episode of your podcast and I really hope we get to meet again in this life. It would be so nice to share a meal or a barbecue. Thank you for your inspiration. Warm regards, Tobias. Thanks for the question, Tobias. It should be a bit of fun to answer, and I do hope we do get to meet and share a meal or a barbecue or a bottle of wine or whatever at some point. So I've given it some thought, and the five planet-saving strategies I would suggest are 
as follows. Not necessarily in order, but number one, vote with your wallet. Now, people often fail to recognise the power of their spending choices. When you consciously source your food from those that are farming sustainably, reducing their chemical interventions and, and improving their soil fertility and humus levels, you're directly supporting those that are doing the right thing. Those heroes are then justly rewarded and others will be perhaps stimulated to adopt a similar path. Similarly, the companies who are doing the right thing with reducing energy consumption or plastic packaging or trying to create a lower carbon footprint, they should be supported with your wallet to, to, to kind of applaud their initiatives and encourage more uptake. At farmers markets, for example, it's a great idea to put a face to your food. That involves asking some growers, asking growers some questions and determine whom's growing sustainably and, and supporting those food producers. It's a bit cheeky, but a refractometer can be a good guideline here. You just sample some leaves from green vegetables or carrot or beetroot or celery tops, and the higher the bricks levels, the better the grower, and the more deserving he or she is of your wallet vote. Oh, I guess it's kind of borderline theft if you get too obvious and pluck half the saleable crop during your BRICS investigation. It might be a better idea to buy the vegetable you intend testing. You'll soon sort the wheat, the wheat from the chaff. Remember that the nutrient density you're measuring is often a direct guideline as to sustainable nitrogen management. Now, agriculture contributes 80% of the nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, which thickens the blanket, traps the heat and overheats our world. While nitrous oxide seems a, a minor player amongst the offending trio involved in greenhouse gases, it's actually anything but. In fact, nitrous oxide is 310 times more thickened of the blanket than the much more abundant CO2 component. Many growers don't realise that they're their own worst enemies in relation to nitrogen oversupply, so often they've oversupplied an increasingly costly mineral only to antagonise the uptake of potassium, calcium and boron and increasing pest pressure, they're inadvertently flooding the plant with the excess water that carries in the nitrates, and this dilutes nutrient density and compromises flavour and crop resilience. I know we've discussed this before, but insects and disease organisms love those substandard plants created through nitrogen mismanagement. So now you've also locked yourself into a more expensive chemical bill. The use of pertinent questions and a refractometer can help you it can help you with your spending choices. Your support of the best food producers in this manner can eventually help prompt a rethink of the flawed farming practices that are damaging our soils, our health, and our planet. So that's number one, voting with your wallet and rewarding the farmers doing the right thing. Number two, always separate inorganic from organic waste in your rubbish stream. Seems like a small thing, but... Basically, it can have a major outcome in terms of reducing greenhouse gases. Rubbish dumps are amongst the highest sources of methane pollution, and this outpouring is linked to the anaerobic decay that happens when we don't separate our rubbish streams. However, it's not enough to just put in that extra effort to separate the streams. We also need to get off the couch and lobby our local governments to collect inorganic and organic waste in separate bins. Those councils should then be strongly encouraged to compost that organic waste and return the compost to the soil as, as a primary humus building tool. And how do you do this strongly encouraging thing? Well, it's simple. You just gather together via social media communities and refuse to pay your rates unless the local government start a proactive contribution to averting a climate change calamity. 
there's an urgency here. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the latest IPCC report, but it's getting real urgent and there's simply no place for apathy. Alternatively, you could compost that separated organic matter yourself in a compost bin or feed it into your worm farm before adding that vermicast to your, gar your garden. If every backyarder was to double organic matter in their soils, in the big picture it would re represent a major planet-saving global form of carbon sequestration. Number three, I mean they seem like basic things, but we've got to think about it and we've got to walk the talk. Number three is to become plastic conscious. Now plastic packaging is out of control and microplastics are creating immeasurable environmental damage. Again, there's no place for apathy and it's past time for action. We all need to reduce our plastic footprint. It's, not hard, it's really not hard to halve the amount of plastic you and your family use by just being aware of the necessity and urgency and developing the required commitment. Take your own bags to the supermarket. Again, you can vote with your wallet by choosing to not purchase products that involve single-use plastics. That's what my kids try to do and I have finally got to the point that I'm following their initiative. I mean, do any of us really need prepackaged fruit and vegetables? And that's how it's all done these days. And we're encouraging them, we're encouraging that process by buying those prepackaged things. Our coffee culture needs to evolve to include the, the urgent removal of plastic cups and spoons. I hate to hear myself say this, but I'm not a big fan of because I'm simply not a big fan of overregulation by governments. But I think it's I think it's time to get draconian and to introduce heavy fines and taxes to force things in the right direction. I'm pretty sure we're going to see a rapid uptake, for example, if there was a $5,000 fine for polluting the organic bin with an inorganic rubbish that might compromise the potential for a clean compost stream. Mind you, I reckon you'd probably see some gun-toting Americans guarding their bins so their neighbours don't sneak in any rubbish. Similarly, a heavy plastics tax would speed the awakening of the producers and the polluting public. So, so you know, it's, it's bad news, government stepping in, but it's getting urgent, we've got to do something. Number four, reduce unnecessary consumption and take joy in recycling. Our throwaway consumerism is slowly killing us. It's a great concept to embrace the four R's. R's. If we can all strive to reduce, reuse, recycle and repair, then we're helping to counter the consequences of thoughtless excess. This is a really simple yet effective way to reduce the amount of waste that you produce. Try to reduce the amount of new products that you buy and instead opt for second-hand items. I personally buy everything I need on Facebook Marketplace and very often they're near new for half the normal price. I find joy in seeking out pre-loved quality products rather than succumbing to the lure of cheap, new, substandard rubbish. In fact, I've asked my partner and family to refresh my commitment with a kick or a prod whenever I'm attracted to a Bunnings bargain. Bunnings is the big hardware store. Many of those cheap thrills have become frustration and fury when they fall apart six months or six weeks later. You're far better off to research the best quality, check out secondhand availability before paying the higher price and buying new. Either way, you're going to rejoice in the quality for years to come and that initial price pain is very quickly forgotten. When you do need to buy products, it's also a good idea to look for items that are made from sustainable materials that can be easily recycled. There's a joy in repairing and recycling a quality item. I've got a number of 60 and 70 year old tractors on the farms and I, and I kind of marvel at their simplicity and inherent durability every time that I drive one. 
Number five, become carbon conscious. There are multiple strategies linked to this consciousness. We can plant trees to sequester CO2 in their carbon-dense trunks. We can build humus in our gardens and farms with compost cover crops and minimum till. However, there are also some less obvious carbon sequestration tools. One of them involves the embrace of cam plants in our garden. These are predominantly the succulents. CAM stands for Cragulation Acid Metabolism, and these plants basically photosynthesize differently. Um, they store carbon in their leaves at night for use during the day, and their role in the scheme of things is to increase soil carbon in arid soils. So we see most of them as succulents and cactuses and so forth. So soils lacking carbon, lacking humus, uh, these guys are there to pump more carbohydrates and more humus building materials into the soil, and they're really genuine humus builders in all soils. It's not, not just arid soils. So they can also stimulate surrounding plants with those carbon exudates. They're so easy to propagate. And they've got kind of a truly beautiful, diverse structure uh, that needs very little maintenance. So they're quite a good thing, these succulent gardens. And I, I actually love them. I've got collections of them. Sounds like a, a pretty good carbon-conscious strategy to me. And some of them also have wonderful health benefits. I'm thinking of plants like aloe vera, an amazing plant that stimulates your gut biology and men's bowel disorders, amongst many other benefits. And aloe vera is pumping carbon down into that soil because it's what's called a CAM plant, a cragulation acid metabolism plant. Carbon consciousness extends to things like reduced energy consumption, turning off lights, changing light bulbs to the more efficient versions, much more costly, of course, but much more effective, taking shorter showers, turning off appliances, we can carpool, we can use public transportation or bikes and source local food that hasn't been carried across the globe. Solar power, electric vehicles all help, but, in a, but, but it's a concerted effort that will make the difference. Improved education for children is critical, but it's hard when their role models are, there, are often the perfect examples of rampant consumerism and carbon thoughtlessness. Okay, let's move on to question two. This one comes from Kenneth Hofer. From Canada and Kenneth wrote, Hello Graham, I hope you're doing well. We're starting this year on our cropland to add a good source of humic acid and compost extract to promote soil health. We're starting to get a setup with the proper equipment and always eager to learn more in regards how to do this in the best way. Do you have any suggestions and can you share productive humate tips? How much extract and humic acid should we apply per acre for example and, and what is the best source? And would you know of any producers in Canada that have a similar approach to our interests? The compost we're going to be using will be a good source of vermicompost. Also, Graham, what would be one of the best supplements a person could take to promote their antioxidant health? Thank you and all the best, Kenneth. Okay, don't ask me a question like that. <laughs> With health questions, it's going to be a long answer. But anyway, I'm sure it'll be helpful. Let's start with the first part of the question. Kenneth mentioned the use of a good source of humic acid. Now, the first thing to think here is what determines good? And that's a question that most growers need to understand. There are four pitfalls to avoid when you're trying to assess humic acid quality and likely performance. So number one, the humic acid must be a potassium humate. That's a form of humic acid that is fully soluble. Now, many products on the market involve insoluble humic acid in the form of concentrated and sometimes micronized brown coal and these granules 
do not deliver the immediate benefits that we derive from combining soluble humic acid granules with soluble fertilizers at that 5% rate that I'm a fan of. The brown coal humates can provide some long-term slow-release benefits, but that's not what you're looking for at planting. You're using humic acid at this point to stabilize and magnify your expensive fertilizer inputs while also stimulating root growth, while feeding beneficial fungi, while perhaps reducing acid and salt damage from the fertilizers. It's kind of multifunctional. You're also improving soil structure and the breathing capacity of the soil in the root zone. And of course, that improves all important gas exchange or the soil's capacity to breathe, which is what gas exchange is, of course. Soluble humic acid binds to nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium and it forms stable ammonium humates or phosphate humates or potassium humates and these are much less prone to lock up or leach. The humic acid, the humic acid buffers the destructive burning impact of acid fertilisers that can harm emerging roots and, and tend to sizzle mycorrhizal hyphae as they're developing. Unbuffered DAP and MAP are now recognised as major players in the decimation of mycorrhizal fungi in our, in our farming soils. In fact, it's just 10% of these important creatures remaining. The humic acid not only reduces this burn, but it's also a powerful fungal stimulant to encourage proliferation of mycorrhizal fungi. So humic acid is a win-win scenario in that contest, or a double whammy scenario. It also has an oxen-like hormonal effect that tends to stimulate root and shoot growth. And it can also hold more moisture in the root zone while helping to break up compacted soils. So a lot of gains from this stuff. It's really important to note that these wonderful benefits need to happen as soon as possible. And that means the humic acid must be soluble. It must be immediately active at planting. Okay, so that's number one. Choose a fully soluble potassium humate. It's always called a potassium humate because potassium hydroxide is used to solubilize the material from brown coal. So look for a soluble form. Number two, there's two types of soluble humic acid powders and granules on the market. First, it's important to recognize that this highly beneficial strategy of stabilizing and magnifying inputs is only relevant to the soluble granules. Now, I was one of the early adopters of humic acid granules because I recognized the profound benefits of this natural acid can't happen in the liquid form because here's the deal, humic acid is a weird acid that's only soluble in alkaline conditions. Hence, it's solubilized and extracted from certain types of brown coal, as I mentioned earlier, using highly alkaline potassium hydroxide. Now, the vast majority of soluble mineral inputs are based on things like sulfuric acid, phosphoric acid, or nitric acid. And all of them are really acidic, and that causes this very alkaline humic acid to fall from solution and create a dense black sludge, what we'd call Vegemite in Australia, and Vegemite on the bottom of your tank, I'm a, I promise you you're not going to be smiling at that point. There are really only a handful of exceptions amongst major inputs of things that are actually compatible because all of them are acidic. Now urea is compatible with humic acid. In fact, humic acid is the perfect partner with foliar urea or soil applied urea because it can buffer the burning potential it can create a stable urea humate, uh, and it's just a great tool to combine with urea. Now, what else can you mix humic acid with? Well, sodium borate and sodium molybdate are alkaline because they've got a sodium component, 
So they're compatible. So not much, much else, unfortunately. Actually, a really good little recipe to bring back that red colour, which of course is called leg hemoglobin, into the root nodules on legumes, is just foliar spray, a kilogram of sodium borate, 50 grams of sodium molybdate, and 7 litres of what I call do-it-yourself humic acid per hectare. So do-it-yourself is just taking 1 kilo of soluble granules per 10 litres of water. So 7 litres isn't even quite a kilo, but that's plenty to... Uh, complex and magnify the boron, the molybdenum, and you know, in, in this particular recipe that I've mentioned, to bring back that red colour into the nodules. As I, as I've said previously, this blood of the plant, this leg hemoglobin, has to be there for the legume to fix nitrogen, and then of course the side side effect of that nitrogen fixation is the acid exudates that release and break the bond between calcium and phosphate, and they also those acids exudates also tend to generate fungal stimulation and none of that happens if you're not fixing nitrogen so as i mentioned do it yourself humic acid dissolve one kilogram of our soluble humate granules with every 10 liters of water so say 100 kilograms per thousand liters i i use uh, I, I use a big sort of air pump when i'm dissolving them uh, i think it's a 300 liter per minute with a three quarter inch hose and the hose just sort of swirls around in that thousand litre tote and it spreads, it sort of speeds the dissolving process. I typically then let it sit undisturbed overnight to let that small amount of insoluble sludge drop out. There's still a little bit of insoluble sludge. Uh, you can get fully soluble humate granules or hum humic acid powders, but they're much more expensive and that sludge is actually a valuable material. So you let it drop out and then decant the shuttle into another shuttle perhaps with a pump uh, leaving that sludge layer undisturbed, or you can might put it in 200 litre drums or 20 litre drums or whatever. But remember that that sludge byproduct is a really, really good fertiliser. I mean, use it on your fruit trees or in your home garden, never throw it out. It actually comprises a completely insoluble component of humate. So we've got humic acid, we've got fulvic acid, we have a third component called humans, H U M I N S. And the vast load of minerals that were found in that ancient organic matter, and that's really the whole spectrum of minerals, they're not found in humic and fulvic acid, they're actually found in this insoluble component, and that's the material in that sludge. So it's a real special fertiliser, and you know it's a bit of messing around to produce your own do-it-yourself humic acid, but just for example, in Australia, it costs about 30 cents a litre to do it yourself with that one kilo per 10 litres, and that compares to about you know, a couple of dollars a litre for the store-bought stuff, so it's worth the effort, and you get that wonderful mineral-dense sludge. Okay, I better get back on track. What are the two types of soluble humates on the market, and what's the difference between them? Well, soluble humates can be derived from two different types of brown coal, and they're called lignite and leonardite. And the two types differ in that leonardite has been oxidised over the millions of years uh, and, and this oxygen impact makes all the active components in leonardite more active. In fact, we find that as a rule of thumb that leonardite offers about double the positive impact that we see with lignite. So lignite's not bad, it's just half as good as leonardite. So that means you need twice as much lignite to get the same response. Now, some companies here in Australia claim that they're lignite, because all Australian coals are lignites, but they claim 
that it's a Leonardite because they pulled it from the ground and left it sitting in the oxygen for a few months. And that's, well, that's total nonsense because it takes thousands of years to properly oxidize the coal to create the Leonardite form. Now, you can fast track the process with a very strong oxidant like something like hydrogen peroxide, but it's really not cost effective. So the message here is that you should always determine that you're using a true Leonardite if you're looking for the very best response. Now, the third pitfall relates to differing quality found in humates from different regions. So obviously, the forests that created the brown coal would have had a huge variation in their nutrient density, and that's based on the soil type, the mineralization, the active biology that was present at the time. And you can't possibly assume that two granular products, because they've got 80% humic acid, that they'll be identical in performance, and of course they're not. And that's why it's always best to do a little research. Find out the products with a good reputation and be a little selective when you're buying humic acid. Finally, it's, it's a good idea to do the sums and determine the most cost-effective product. Now, there are some good quality products that come from Europe, for example, but often when you do the sums, their price can't be justified. So that's the four things to look out for with humates. Let's look at Ken's questions about extraction techniques and application rates for compost extracts. I've mentioned this before, but I've become a big fan of extracts compared to leachades or, or even brewed compost teas because basically it's all about biodiversity and they deliver much higher biodiversity. You know, you, you brew up a, a compost tea and you're selected for oxygen-loving organisms and that might be a fraction of the total number of organisms present and they tend to dominate. And when you do an extract, you're getting basically the whole deal. Biodiversity is what makes nature hum, essentially. In fact, she's in full-throated song when thousands of different species are extracted from vermicompost and delivered to the plant or soil. A worm leachade, for example, is really just a few unfortunate losers who kind of inadvertently drip from the comfort of their humus home base into the container below. A compost tea, as I said, small number of oxygen-loving organisms tend to proliferate and they dominate uh, and, and multiply in that perfect environment, that highly oxygenated environment that they like. Now, there still can be some good things amongst compost tea, uh, but sometimes these oxygen-loving creatures can really struggle when you put them into a soil that is not breathing well. So a tight, high-magnesium soil, for example, lacking in oxygen is going to struggle, but an extract, in comparison to a tea, an extract, literally, you're basically beating that vast diversity of microbes that are found in the vermicast, you're beating them off their humus base and then delivering that maximum diversity in the field. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it many more times, nature loves diversity. And we've compromised much of that soil diversity with the biocides that have become an integral part of modern food production. There can be some really heartwarming increases in resilience and productivity when we reintroduce that diversity. So how do you create an extract on farm? The starting point is to select a good active compost with a nice smell. You're smelling a creature called actinomycetes that are an integral part of a good vermicompost. They produce the volatile chemicals that give a healthy soil that delicious smell. And they're a signpost creature. They're, they're there. There's good numbers of everything else present generally. Uh, there are various ways we can extract, but they all typically involve a high-pressure air pump 
and a hose that creates sufficient agitation and force to strip the microbes from the compost. It's not a gentle nurturing removal. It's basically a super vigorous swirling, bubbling and stripping trying to achieve maximum extraction. Now, you can monitor the optimum time period for that extraction with your, basically you can do it with a microbiometer, which of course measures total microbial biomass of the extract. If that takes 30 minutes to get the highest reading, then you set your timer in future for 30 minutes and you beat those microbes off the humus for that 30 minute period to get your maximum number and maximum diversity. Now, the next step involves emptying the extract from the tank in a usable form. And this obviously is an issue because you've got a slurry that's going to clog filters and irrigation lines. Now, broadacre growers have started this concept of pumping from the slurry tank into this vibrating sieve that isolates the clean liquid from the solids and screens that liquid down to, say, 100 microns or less. And a trash pump is attached to the bottom outlet of the tank and there's a container provided for the solids so this pump can pump the sludge. And those solids can then be used for mulch or sometimes they're added back to the compost. And, of course, the liquid can store it in a cool place and be used. It's actually got a little bit of shelf life and you can use it as required. Now, you would typically dilute this liquid at something like 1 to 20 if you were using uh, spray rates of, say, 40 litres an acre or 100 litres per hectare. In broad acre, you'd effectively be using just 2 litres of extract per acre or 5 litres per hectare, and that would typically involve just a couple of kilograms of compost to create the extract. So it's a really, really cheap strategy. I mean, even if you're paying $500 a tonne, if it's two kilos, it's 50 cents a kilo, it's a dollar, it's, um, you know, in intensive horticulture where higher rates are used, you might, you know, up your, increase your application rate maybe fourfold. Uh, and that's what I do on my apple orchard, for example. Now, that concept's not just limited to vermicompost. You can use a good fungal-dominated compost, a green waste compost, for example, in exactly the same manner. And it's a great way to improve that all-important fungi to bacteria ratio by sort of beating those fungi off the humus and putting them out there. Now, I'm actually a fan of breeding trichoderma up in a 50-50 mix of straw and cow manure and then using this extraction technique to basically create your own invaluable problem solver in the form of a liquid usable form of trichoderma. Okay, just to conclude this, agriculture part of this question for Kenneth. You're, if you're looking for someone who's of a like mind in Canada, uh, the best guy to look at is Dave DeVries from Ag Solutions in Canada. Dave and his son, wonderful job they're doing over there. They're our distributors in that region. And also in the US for that matter, they move quite a lot of stuff into the US from Canada. And they can put you in contact with many fellow growers working with regenerative strategies. They can also supply you with our Leonardite-based soluble humate granules if you're interested. Now, let's have a look at the human health component of Kenneth's question. Kenneth asked about which antioxidants are best to consume for protective nutrition. Let's quickly reiterate what an antioxidant actually does and why they're so important. So our bodies naturally produce free radicals and we're equipped with a natural antioxidant system to neutralize them. Free radicals are molecules with unpaired electrons in their outer shell, and that imbalance makes them kind of react like a wildfire or perhaps a wrecking ball 
towards neighboring cells. These destructive molecules also come from outside of our bodies in the form of things like radiation and pollutions and things like cigarettes and alcohol and certain chemicals. And these free radical fires are really intimately linked to both aging and serious disease. And it's antioxidants that charge to the rescue. They donate one of their electrons to balance the boat and quell the free radical fires. And the big difference in this in the strange chemical-laden world we've created is that we are now subject to more external free radicals than our natural antioxidant systems can manage. So we produce them even when you go for a big long run and create a bunch of oxidants. Some of them become free radicals. That's normal, and the antioxidants neutralize them. But we're getting all these sort of external toxins in our environment and food-grade additives and the air we breathe and the water we drink and so forth. Uh, and the food we're consuming with sort of chemical residues and so forth. So basically we've we've got to the point that we need really need most of us to look at supplementing some form of, of antioxidant to counter uh, that challenge. So, so the first point of call when we look at antioxidants are the antioxidant vitamins, and vitamin C is the big workhorse here. Now, humans don't create their own vitamin C, so we're dependent upon food sources of this nutrient. Now, many would argue that a balanced diet is going to deliver enough vitamin C. However, it's time we got a bit real here. In a world with over 74,000 registered chemicals along with atmospheric and water pollution, you could peel oranges till your wrists seize and you won't supply sufficient vitamin C to counter that level of toxins. Now, Professor Linus Pauling won his second Nobel Prize in the only man to win two Nobel Prizes single-handedly, he won that second prize for his discovery that high-dose vitamin C can be wonderfully protective. He demonstrated that it boosts immune function, it promotes skin health, and fire its kind of critical role in collagen production. Of course, it neutralizes free radicals to protect from associated degenerative diseases, including cancer. Apart from intravenous vitamin C, the very best supplement is liposomal vitamin C. It's more expensive, but it's much better utilized than any other form. I had a wonderful response, actually. I had a kind of a post-COVID lethargy, and I had, I think, 30,000 milligrams as intravenous vitamin C, and really it was kind of like just switching on the lights. And I've talked to several people who have had a similar response with intravenous vitamin C if they've had that sort of lethargy that can linger on after COVID. Now, vitamin E, that's the fat-soluble sister of water-soluble ascorbic acid. It's hugely important. So, so vitamin C is water-soluble, vitamin E is fat-soluble, and that's pretty important when you look at something like the brain, which is 60% dry weight fat, or the heart, for example, which is also you know, hugely, fats are hugely important part of that particular organ. So when we look at vitamin E, it's important to note that the very best supplements involve all eight forms of this nutrient. So we now know that it's not just alpha-tocopherol, that was a dumbed-down version of vitamin E. We know that there are four tocotrienols, and they're actually more powerful than the tocopherols, but there are four tocotrienols and four tocopherols, and the very best natural source is something called red palm oil. Now, I have to mention a product of mine here called Red Gold. Red Gold, it's a source from an organic source from South America, and you can source it yourself at ntshealth.com.au. That's ntshealth.com.au. 
health.com.au. Now, red, red palm oil is so high in antioxidants. So the red color, of course, comes from carotenes and it has all eight forms, the highest known source of all eight forms of vitamin E. But because of that massive dose of antioxidants, it's the only oil that you can't actually damage during cooking. So it's also a delicious plant-based saturated fat, sort of like coconut oil, well, very much like coconut oil. Oh my goodness, you want to try a vegetable bake. You know, you might put sweet potatoes and parsnips and pumpkin and an onion perhaps, um, and you drizzle red palm oil onto them and bake them in the oven. And Oh my goodness, it's that delicious saturated fat. It's just the best way to eat roast vegetables. The other fat-soluble vitamins are vitamin A and vitamin D. So all of those uh, all of those vitamins are considered to be antioxidants. But vitamin D is not actually a vitamin. It's what's called a pro-hormone. And even though it's, it's not an antioxidant, it can provide some really profound immune support, including protection against COVID. Now, the very best source of both vitamin A and vitamin D is cod liver oil. Uh, and and it's got the added bonus, of course, of having very high levels of much-needed omega-3 fatty acids. I'm a huge fan of supplementing. In fact, I do it every night. I take a, a tablespoon of cod liver oil with the juice of a lemon, uh, and I put a bit of um, a bit of turmeric with it, actually. And there's really good new research that omega-3 fats are much better utilized in the presence of phenolic compounds. So I'll put maybe a little bit of resveratrol or a grapeseed supplement with my daily dose of cod liver oil. So phenolic compounds like those found in berries, apple skins, dark chocolate and green tea are the most powerful of the other antioxidants. Now, I've got to mention another product from my Nutrition Farms range. We've just launched a product called Phytoforce, P-H-Y-T-O-F-O-R-C-E, and that's based upon freeze-dried concentrate of red apple skins. It's a powder that can be added onto breakfast cereals. It's a really nice, delicious, tangy flavor. You can put it into green smoothies. It has this absolutely amazing ORAC score, which is a measure, of course, of antioxidant uh, levels. And it's I think it's a really special supplement. Now, goji berries and elderberries, when we talk about ORAC scores, they have amongst the highest of the ORAC scores. Uh, and of course, when you dry them, that quadruples the ORAC score them you've concentrated astaxanthin is one of the most powerful antioxidants ever researched so it's got a role to play in any kind of defensive nutrition program and i think that sort of has roughly covered kenneth's questions now the final question for this episode comes from david cunningham in scotland now david's a regenerative ag consultant and a broad acre producer and here are his questions hi graham Happy New Year, and I trust this finds you in a great form. It's a little late for Happy New Year, but this is uh, where we're at. This is the first first episode this year. So I hope this finds you in great form. I was hoping to arrange a Zoom consult sometime soon. Specifically, I was, I was wanting to come up with a program for growing faba beans in our climate in Scotland. They're so hit and miss here, particularly with regard to pod retention and late season. I was also hoping that you might share your opinion on the use of cobalt foliars to boost pod production. It would also be good if you could share some tips for increased protein production in this crop. Our major disease issue with fava beans is a fungal disease called chocolate spot, but we also have issues with ascophyta and botrytis. I'm hoping you've got some suggestions for proactive protection. 
Finally, I'd like you to further explain the mechanics of your shuttle collates, as I understand they're quite different to standard collation. I really look forward to catching up. Cheers, Dave. Well, I was able to chat to Dave and two of his colleagues on Zoom recently, but I thought that it might be a benefit to share some of my advice via this podcast. So let's begin with the issue of poor pod retention. Now, the chief suspect from a nutrition perspective is a potassium shortage. Unless you're monitoring this this mineral with leaf analysis or, or the handheld monitoring tools, many growers are simply not aware of the tremendous drawdown of potassium during pod formation. If you've not allowed for this at the business end of the season, and you know, and, and at that business end of the season you have a dry finish, then that potassium shortage is further magnified and pod loss is kind of inevitable. Uh, potassium is typically the first major deficiency that appears in dry conditions because it's, it's in soil solution. You've got no soil solution, you've got no potassium, so, and it's the second most abundant mineral in the plant. So look for that burnt margin on the outer edge of the lower leaves. It's a, as I said, it's sourced from soil solution when you've got none, uh, and that can be a real costly deficiency, so you want to keep your eye on potassium. The solution, you know, if you're using a potassium meter, as I mentioned, you measure top leaf, bottom leaf, and they should be the same. If there is an obvious deficiency, you've got much lower levels in the lower leaves. The solution is to foliar spray potassium, and basically potassium sulfate works works really well. Uh, we, have a, we have a good foliar product based on potassium citrate, which is also very gentle. Um, but recently I researched the most efficient forms of foliar potassium and it was interesting to find that potassium acetate was actually really, really, really powerful in some of the studies. It was superior in several studies. It can be used at lower rates to achieve a similar response and that actually makes it more cost effective. Uh, there are also studies showing increases in harvestable pot num- pod numbers and seed counts of barber beans following foliar applications of potassium acetate. So it's something to consider. The other major cause of, of, of pod drop relates to abiotic stress. So weather extremes like, and there's no shortage of these, that's what the brave new world of climate change farming is about. So weather extremes like heat waves and droughts and frost and heavy rainfall, they can prompt the plant to drop pods. And this, is, of course, is part of the increased challenges in this, in this crazy world we live in. When I asked about these issues, when I particularly asked about that, when we had the meeting with David in the, in the Zoom session, he immediately nodded, nodded and said yes to all of the above. It appears that Scotland's suffering from extremes and the same extremes that are impacting the rest of us. A couple of episodes back, I talked about a foliar recipe that, equi- that can equip the plant with the added defence tools to help counter abiotic stress. This is obviously relevant here, and it's something all of us should be considering and all forms of crop production. So let's review that recipe and add in a couple of things. So there's considerable research suggesting that potassium silicate, kelp, tricontinol, fulvic acid, and humic acid can stimulate the plant's defense mechanisms to help counter abiotic stress. Several of these actually enhance the plant's capacity to create cytokinins and kelp actually contains significant quantities of this natural hormone. Cytokinins are also stimulated by cobalt foliars, so that should be an inclusion. And we'll talk about cobalt in much more depth, or we have already talked about cobalt in much more depth. Uh, it also makes sense to put the micros behind the minerals, so 
uh, in this instance, I would use something like liquid vermicast or my beneficial anaerobic product called BAM, and that would go, you know, putting the microbes behind the minerals to get a better response always. Um, and basically, I'll give you a recipe based upon just, say, 100 litres of water per hectare, which is broad acre rate, and you might use a lot more than that in more intensive horticulture agriculture. Uh, add one litre of BAM per 100 litres of water first, and then add 700 mils of potassium silicate. This is the 100 litre recipe. So one litre of BAM, 700 mils of potassium silicate, then add and dissolve 100 grams of soluble fulvic acid powder into the mix. So this is a soluble powder. And next, add one litre of do-it-yourself humic acid. That's the 1 to 10 dilution we talked about. And finally, add 50 mils of triacontinol per hectare, 50 mils per 100 litres, and 100 grams of cobalt sulphate per hectare can then be added if you can source this input. Now, that mix will cost a little over $10 per hectare using our product, but it may be more expensive elsewhere. There are also benefits that extend beyond increased resilience here because cytokines are recognised yield builders, and this is a process, uh, you know, you've got this sort of enhanced photosynthesis that comes with triconotylon silica. So it's a great recipe that is so valid to the problems that we're facing currently. So... It's the kind of thing we've got to look at if we're going to continue to survive and thrive amidst these extremes. So let's look at the best seed treatment for fava beans in recognition that this is the most cost-effective way to set up the crop with a healthy kickstart. In this instance, the best seed treatment involves our blend of azotobacter called BioN combined with some BAM, some fulvic acid and a complete liquid fertilizer like triple 10. Now, 10 litres of liquid per tonne of seed will usually create kind of manageable moisture in the seed so it won't become too sticky in the seed. So here's your, here's your 10 litre recipe. This is 10 litres per tonne. Add 1.5 litres of bioen into 8 litres of BAM. So uh, you've, you've put the 1.5 into the 8 litres, you've got your 10 litres, and now you dissolve 200 grams of soluble fulvic acid powder into that mix and add 500 mils of triple 10. That will treat one ton of seed with this mix by spraying the seed with this mix as it goes up into the, it goes up on the auger, or by pre-treating the seed in a concrete mixer. Uh, if you wish to trial this mix by scaling down to just one kilogram of seed, then you'll use 1.5 mils of bioen, eight mils of BAM, just half a mil of triple ten, and perhaps one gram of fulvic acid powder in ten mils of water. So, very small amounts. Now, cobalt. Cobalt folias are a great strategy. That was a question. As I mentioned, we've already talked about that in the nutrition farming tools segment. But um, basically, one gram per litre, 100 grams per 100 litres in broadacre scenarios is the rate that seems to deliver according to research. Now, let's look at the management now of chocolate spot, which of course is botrytis, and, and ascophyta and fava beans. That all three of these issues can be managed with a combination of trichoderma and bacillus subtilis. And now I favour these two organisms that are compatible, trichoderma and bacillus subtilis, and they'll control quite a range of, of fungal diseases. So basically you can actually brew both of them and that can make them even more cost effective. Um, and of course, you know, I, I've also mentioned in a previous talk the idea of the 40-day trichoderma compost and then forcing the hyphae from the medium using a high-pressure pump with that extract concept that we've talked about. Um, and BAM has been shown to be effective against both diseases. So, 
it's compatible with the above inoculum, so you can actually mix all three of them together. I've mentioned it several times before, but it's always more productive to send the boys or girls off to work with a lunchbox, you've heard me say it. In this, this instance, what would the lunchbox be? Well, and Mike, I, I would choose kelp and fulvic acid. It only need involve something like 100 grams of tricalp and 100 grams of soluble fulvic acid powder and 100 litres of water per hectare to be really effective. And I'd, I'd probably toss in a couple of tablespoons per hectare of tricontinent or our product, which is called Nutristim. So you'd have that resilience-enhancing effect tied to the intended stimulation of that new work- workforce. Now, next in David's questions was the issue of building better protein levels in the broad beans, and they're a wonderful source of protein, of course, and they're delicious, and they rank amongst my favourite legumes. So let's look at five minerals that can play a role in boosting protein. Of course, the obvious one is nitrogen. In the case of nitrogen-fixing plants, it's often best to boost nitrogen via foliar inoculums rather than urea foliars. In this case, I'd favour a blend of nitrogen-fixing azotobacter that are designed to live on the leaf and they can fix nitrogen directly into the leaf via the atmosphere. So our product's called Bioplex. It's foliar sprayed at just 300 mils per hectare, and it can provide a really nice measurable increase in nitrogen to help build protein. Number two is potassium. Potassium is essential for protein synthesis, so it's often lacking in this crop due at the business end of the season, and people don't pick up on it. And as I said, I favour eight kilograms per hectare of potassium sulfate with 300 grams of soluble fulvic acid powder to magnify and collate that potassium input. Sulfur, I guess the potassium sulfate is going to be sort of uh, offering a double whammy in this context because it's supplying two minerals for both of which are critical to protein formation. So sulfur, of course, absolutely essential component of two of the most important amino acids that are needed to build protein, cysteine and methionine, are based on sulfur. So sulfur can be helpful in this context. Zinc is the fourth mineral. This mineral is involved in multiple plant processes, including processes that are commonly, it's a mineral that's commonly lacking in broadacre scenarios. So foliar spray, just one kilogram of zinc sulfate per hectare can be really productive, particularly since you know, it, it can impact leaf size. A zinc deficiency, you'll have a smaller leaf. And, of course, that's your solar panel. It's going to make a big difference to production. So a zinc foliar can be helpful also for protein production. And boron is also, uh, you know, we know about its role in calcium performance and the formation of cell walls and cell divisions, but boron deficiency can also indirectly compromise protein levels, so it should be part of your package. So in this context, a pre-flower foliar might include 300 mils of bioplex and 300 grams of soluble fulvic acid powder with 8 kilograms of potassium sulfate, a kilogram of zinc sulfate, and 500 grams of sodium borate. In Australia, that might be maybe $40 a hectare, but it can be a good return on investment. And finally, David asked me to explain our unique shuttle collation system. This is actually more of a kind of mineral delivery system rather than collation as we commonly know it. But here's the story. A South African research scientist was working on a new collating agent for use in gold extraction. He was experimenting with some quite unusual carbohydrate formulations and his lab assistant inadvertently tossed some of the lab washings onto a native shrub at the entrance of the research facility. Now that shrub had lain dormant 
literally not grown an inch in three years and suddenly it exploded in new growth uh, and so the research began into what had generated such a profound response now in you know this is gutless west australian sand so how could it suddenly you know, explode in growth the way it did so here's how the process works the mineral the mineral ions are encouraged to form this is what collating agent or the mineral delivery system does so the mineral ions are encouraged to form nanoclusters so let's look at zinc shuttle for example the zinc ions are sort of held in this nanocluster like like sheep in a holding pen and a biochemical called a shuttle ligand hence the term shuttle uh, it, which is negatively charged is magnetically attracted to the positively charged zinc ions the sheep in the pen it attaches to a zinc ion and then because it now has an overall positive charge it's drawn to the strongly negatively charged leaf surface and there it remains bobbing against that surface awaiting an entry point that entry point is facilitated by a phenomenon called thermal vibration now in this dynamic process tiny openings can appear in the plant surface when basically that opening coincides with this bouncing ion, this um, bobbing ion, uh, then the shuttle ligand is able to deliver its zinc load through that opening. And at that point, it returns to its negative charge and it's re-attracted to the holding pen and it repeats that process. Grabs the zinc, moves back to the leaf surface, bob, 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 pop, goes back, grabs another zinc ion, bob, 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 pop. And we've actually found that's the most effective uh, the most effective mineral system we've ever seen, it outperforms most collating agent. Um, basically, the, the big thing about it is it means we're no longer shackled to the stomate on the underside of the leaf. That's where we're normally trying to get and We can actually deliver nutrition through any part of the plant, through the top of the leaf, through the stem, through the stalk, through the roots. In fact, it can be delivered right into the trunk of leafless deciduous trees. It's a genuine breakthrough in plant nutrition. So on that exciting note, we'll wrap up the three questions segment, a very long one. I hope some of you have gained some value from this. You can't argue that I'm miserly in my sharing. Damn, I promised I was going to be more concise this time around, but well, there's always so much to share. Two eggs. We're going to, we're going to tell a few bar jokes here, just a little segment on bar jokes. Two eggs, a hash brown, and a sausage walk into a bar. Bartender? My friends and I would like a cold one, says one of the eggs. Sorry, mate, the barman says, we don't serve breakfast. <laughs> a grasshopper walks into a bar and the barman looks at him and says, hey, they named a drink after you. Really, said the grasshopper. There's a drink called Bruce? A polar bear walks into a bar and says to the bartender, I'll have a gin and tonic. And the bartender says, why the big pause? And the polar bear says, beats me, mate. I've always had them. A man, a, man walk, a man walks into a bar with a long strip of asphalt under one arm. And he says, beer please, mate, and one for the road. And finally, a blind man walks into a bar. He sits down at the bar and the female bartender walks up and asks what he wants. He orders a beer and he asks the bartender if she wants to hear a blonde joke. And the bartender resp responds, hold on, buddy, you're clearly not aware, but this bar is completely staffed by women. I'm a six foot two blonde. The woman you're sitting next to is a blonde martial arts expert and the bouncer behind you 
as a blonde bodybuilder. You sure you still want to tell that joke, mate? The blind man says, nah, forget it. I don't want to have to explain it three times. Okay, that's our humour for this segment. It's now time for the increasingly popular human health component of this podcast. Now, I've said it many times, nutrition farming is an integrated, holistic approach where your health is considered to be as important as the health of your soil, your crops and your livestock. So this time around, we're going to be focusing upon pump maintenance and cleaning your pipes. I'm talking about the health of your cardiovascular system. It's pretty important because coronary heart disease remains our largest killer. So let's begin by looking a little more closely at this wondrous pump that begins service three weeks after conception and ceases that service the day we die. That relentless 300 gram organ pumps about 6,000 litres of blood each day, supplying nutrients, messenger molecules, enzymes and oxygen to every one of our 10 trillion cells. It also helps to remove waste products like carbon dioxide as our cells breathe. This pump needs a vast network of pipes to facilitate this delivery and removal process. It's a bit like fertigation. Just as we keep the irrigation pipe work clean and fully functional, there's a need for a similar focus with our blood vessels. This complex network work of arteries, veins and capillaries involves around 100,000 kilometres of pipe work. Both the pump and the pipe work require servicing to ensure function. While block pipes in the field can be a nuisance, the liability becomes a little more serious when we talk about blood vessel blockages. I guess we also need to talk about obesity in relation to heart health. Maybe you're not aware that every kilogram of excess body weight requires up to 500 kilometres of increased blood vessel length. This increases the workload of the heart and it invariably increases blood pressure. There's also a much higher likelihood of oxidised LDL and plaques associated with being overweight. It's pretty basic. The crap food that made you fat also clogs your pipe work. So let's look at the various traumas that can compromise this pipe work. Now the biggest cause of clogged pipes is something called fibrinogen and plaque deposits. And we'll discuss each of these shortly. However, there are other players involved like advanced glycation end products that can also deposit in arteries and reduce cardiovascular health. Now the acronym for this particular pipe clogger is AGE, and that's ironically appropriate because it's a large part of the disease called aging. Then there are the oxidized proteins that can adhere to the pipework. The worst of these is oxidized LDL, low-density lipoprotein. Toxins and bad microbes, including COVID, also create further pipework traumas. And then there's the margarine and destructive cooking oil. So let's look at each of these, beginning with fibrinogen in a segment called Countering the Clots. Fibrinogen is a really important blood balancing substance that's required for blood clotting and wound healing. We're equipped with genes that are upregulated or activated in the presence of inflammation. And these genes trigger the production of fibrinogen when it's required, of course, to counter inflammation. It's a critically important part of the healing process. When we've got an imbalance in our inflammatory response, then the associated accumulation of fibrin can create basically create chaos. This 
insoluble fibrous substance can be a major cause of blood clots associated with strokes and heart attacks. But now we realize that there's also seems to be a link to cancer and neurodegenerative disorders, so it's a big issue. The most significant meta-analysis, which means you know, a mass study, study looking at multiple other studies, uh, the most significant of these, looking at that link between accumulated fibrin and heart disease and stroke, of course, involved 154,211 subjects from 31 different studies. The link was profound and undeniable. Thrombosis, which is when clots block blood vessels, is a major player in heart attacks and strokes. Arterial thrombosis is about the formation and rupture of atherosclerotic plaques, which we'll discuss shortly. However, it's the blood clotting in the veins that's linked to fibrin deposits. Venous thrombosis is linked to blood imbalances and endothelial dysfunction, often driven by inflammation. Obviously, it would be best to reduce the root cause inflammation, but we can also treat symptoms and seek to minimize those fibrin deposits by improving and that the natural enzymic breakdown process called fibrinolysis. Got it. Fibrinolysis. Okay. Then there's the cancer link to fibrinogen. High readings of fibrinogen have been associated with cancer developments and progression for decades. In fact, this excess is now actually seen as a pretty good prognostic tool for identifying likely survival rates. Now let's look at, at fibrin in the brain. And central nervous system disorders like Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis, both of them appear to be linked to disturbances in the blood-brain barrier linked to inflammation. That can trigger fibrin deposits that, along with other players like amyloid plaques and tau proteins, can really mess up your neuronal messaging and seriously destroy quality of life for entire families. I mean, I watched my dad succumb to the nightmare that is Alzheimer's, and I wouldn't wish the great forgetting upon anyone. I feel that all of us really should be exploring tools to reduce the likelihood of what really is a plague disease now, because it affects one in four of us over 65 in the Western world. So anything that can reduce our likelihood is very, very worthy of consideration. And that's what we're talking about here. As I mentioned, one tool to explore is the use of fibrinolytic, fibrinolytic supplements. It makes sense that it would be a pretty productive wellness strategy to fast-track the dissolving of clots linked to heart disease, stroke, cancer, and neurodegeneration. Okay, let's have a closer look now at arterial plaque. You've all heard about it, but let's talk, talk about how it's formed and how it can be counted. This substance is the primary cause for the hardening and narrowing of the arteries, so all of us should understand how it works. Essentially, it's a buildup of fatty deposits, LDL, cholesterol, calcium and other substances that can reduce blood flow and increase the risk of heart attack and stroke. Here's the plaque paradox. Saturated fat has been demonized in relation to the fatty deposit component of this phenomenon, and hence we've seen the massive increase in consumption of margarine and partially hydrogenated vegetable oils as a supposedly healthier alternative. In actual fact, these oils are not a good alternative. They're wildly overused and and abused in, in most processed foods you eat to the point that even your breakfast cereals are laden with this toxic material. 
It might sound extreme, but it really would be a good productive health strategy to check the labels before you buy to reduce the likelihood of feeding this substandard food to your children. An increasing body of research is suggesting that these junk oils and margarine comprise a substantial component of the fatty deposits in plaque. The low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, component of cholesterol is actually much smaller than HDL, and that means it's got more surface area for oxidation. Now we understand that the trans fats involved in junk oils and margarine can actually increase levels of oxidized LDL and its likelihood of depositing on your artery walls. Now where there's smoke, there's fire, and too much of the long-chain fatty acids like palmitic acid can accumulate in the arteries as plaque. Now this is the dominant fat found in beef. It is actually an important substance that's critical to brain and heart health, but as with many things, an excess becomes a serious liability. That excess can very often come from eating feedlot beef. This meat production produces similar amounts of palmitic acid, but much less stearic acid compared to the grass-fed alternative. Now, stearic acid has been shown to kind of reduce the likelihood of raising cholesterol levels, and it can counter some of the negatives associated with other saturated fats. Now, the feedlot beef, of course, is marketed as the superior option, but that's far from the truth. It contains much, much less nutrition, and it contributes to the inflammatory component of coronary heart disease, of stroke, of diabetes, and Alzheimer's. And that's because it's dominated by omega-6 fats. Now, these are the inflammation builders in a two-part inflammatory cascade. And that is balanced out by the omega-3 fats. These omega-3s are the building blocks for the anti-inflammatory stage of that two-part process. Now, the critical balance between omega-6 and omega-3 is two parts omega-6 to one part omega-3. In Australia, that ratio currently sits at 20 to 1 in favour of omega-6. And in the US, it bounces to 26 to 1. So what happens when you've got 10 times more inflammatory influence than what you should have? Well, this is the inflammation link to multiple degenerative diseases. The feedlot cattle themselves are similarly inflamed due to this grain-fed omega-6 emphasis. Understand, omega-6 comes from grain, omega-3 omega comes from grasses. The health of grain-fed animals is compromised, there's more need for chemical intervention, and then we get to eat the antibiotic storm that follows. So, obviously, and I'm getting there, if there's a strategy that can help cleanse our pipes of this plaque buildup, should most definitely be embraced. But before we get there, we're going to talk about reducing age and living longer. So, of course, we're talking about advanced glycation end products and their impact on arterial health. So what are ages? Well, they're proteins or fats that have become glycated as a result of exposure to sugars. Now, this is something we should all strive to understand because ages are a key marker for the development or worsening of some of our most destructive degenerative diseases. Now this includes things like diabetes, Alzheimer's, atherosclerosis, heart disease, high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, and premature aging. 
that's a fairly large percentage of the things that most commonly kill us. One particular study, for example, involved 559 older women. It was found that those with the highest blood levels of ages were almost twice as likely to die of heart disease compared to the, those with the lowest levels of ages. So, what is glycation? This process takes place when sugars like glucose and fructose form non-enzymatic bonds with proteins and fats. This, this cross-linking, as it's called, produces glycotoxins called ages that can begin accumulating in early adulthood. Obviously, if you're knocking back sodas jam-packed with high-fructose corn syrup, you're increasing the likelihood of this toxin accumulation. The simple fact that we consume on average 70 kilograms of sugar per person per year heralds a vast overconsumption that sponsors this destructive accumulation. Type 2 diabetes is now called the coming plague because as many as one in three of us are now considered pre-diabetic. Type 2 diabetes is characterized by age accumulation, resulting in tissue and cell damage and pervasive inflammation of major organs, including the brain. That's why Alzheimer's is called type 3 diabetes. While an oversupply of the white poison is a big player, there's also a powerful link to food preparation and food processing and age accumulation. Now, the culprit here is dry heat. The process of browning or blackening food is called the Maillard reaction. Unfortunately, this creates the delicious barbecue-style tastes and aromas, so it can be a major sacrifice to modify the way we cook food. I remember visiting Cuba some years back with expectations of delicious, spicy Caribbean-style food, and it was hugely disappointed to be repeatedly served up boiled chicken and beans. It was, it was a dead, boring diet, but perhaps there was some traditional nutritional wisdom behind that blandness, mind you. I strongly suspect they don't actually live longer, it just feels like they do. No, seriously, the Maillard reaction is really bad news. A 2010 study published in the Journal of the American Dietetic Association found that food produced through dry heat like frying, grilling or roasting contain high levels of a particularly toxic form of ages called carboxymethylslysines or CMLs. Now, milk is an obvious candidate for glycation because it contains a rich load of fat, proteins and sugars. The heat involved in pasteurization destroys the enzymes responsible for digesting this complex food and it compromises the vitamins that are linked to calcium uptake, including vitamin D. However, studies reveal this heat also creates a fourfold increase in carboxymethylysines, or CMLs. Sounds like a pretty good reason to seek out raw milk if you're able. Dry heat can increase the age component of foods from 10 to 100 times that of, of the original food, that is. So our cooking choices are no small thing. See, our bodies are equipped with mechanisms to remove ages as they're formed or consumed, but when we overdo the sugars or fried food, that system is overwhelmed and the oxidative stress and inflammation begins. There are some really good studies highlighting the foods to avoid and the foods to embrace, but my standout favourite is a 2013 paper called 
advanced glycation in products and foods, and a practical guide to the reduction in the diet by Dr. Jamie Urabari and some of his colleagues. Now you can check that out in full on PubMed and I suggest that most of you would probably benefit from this really good paper. In fact, it could almost be life-changing. Ages are naturally present in uncooked animal-derived foods with their high fats and proteins, but their numbers explode when we roast or fry these foods. Ages are much lower in plant-based foods, but roasted nuts can also be an issue. The modern diet is packed with ages in the form of processed foods, fast foods and heat-damaged oils that are found in so many foods. The findings from multiple human and animal studies have clearly demonstrated that avoidance of dietary ages, or dages as they're termed, can be a really productive strategy to delay chronic diseases and ageing. Let's look at the level of dages in food, and I promise you're not like some of this news. I know this research will have quite an impact on my food choices in future. The measurements are based on kilo units per 100 mils. So corned beef, which of course is boiled, so that's not dry heat, is just 200 kilo units per 100 mils, while fried steak is 10,000 KUs per 100 mils. Chicken breast steamed in foil for 15 minutes is just a little over 1,000 KUs per 100 mils, while crumbed, deep fried or roasted chicken, 10,000 KUs. That's a tenfold increase. However, the biggest horror story is that aromatic breakfast favourite called bacon. We were recently warned by who about the nitrates in bacon and their proven relationship to cancer, but now we have another nail in that coffin. That crunchy taste treat when fried in its own fat for just five minutes contains 90,000 KUs per 100 grams. Not good news for some of my Dutch agronomist friends who pile the plate with bacon rashes each morning. Lamb is the best of the red meats, with fried chops chining in at about 2,500 KUs per 100 mils. Fish suffers a similar fate to the other animal protein sources based on how we cook it. Salmon, for example, steamed for eight minutes in tinfoil, about 1,000 KUs, while whiting crumbed and baked, 8,700 KUs. Eggs were a wake-up call for me because fried eggs are invariably added to the bacon, avocado and tomato on my sourdough toast in the morning and a fried egg measured 2,700 KUs while a poached egg cooked just below simmer for five minutes measures just 90 KUs. That's 30 times less. And I actually prefer poached eggs so that's going to be what I favour in future. When we take a look at our most popular vegetable, steamed potato comes in at just 17 KUs per 100 mils, while McDonald's French fries are over 2,500. Pizza, the favourite takeaway option, comes in at a worrying 6,800 KUs. That's a bit of a concern because most people consume a whole pizza rather than just a slice, so that's a big hit of glycotoxins. The most popular grain is rice, and our Asian friends got it right in this count with boiled rice, under a hundred. So is there a way we can have our cake and eat it too? I always, always look for that story. If we, if we consider it too big a sacrifice to give up the roast, grilled and fries meat, fried meats, is there anything that can help counter these destructive accumulations? Well, one trick is to marinate meats with vinegar or lemon juice for an hour before cooking. 
The acidity appears to reduce the formation of ages. In fact, one study of the ages content was reduced in fried steak by over 50% after 60 minutes of sitting in lemon juice and lemon juice marinade. Slow cookers are the absolute champions of ages reduction in terms of cooking strategies, but stews and soups are also good. It looks like I'll be pulling out the old crock pot from the top shelf in the pantry as I'm now convinced that I've really been overdoing the fried foods and to my very likely detriment. There are also, also a few supplements that can reduce formation of ages, and one of these is the Wonder Spice turmeric. Yes! Indian cuisine certainly nailed it for slow-cooked curries and rice and turmeric and ginger and black pepper, which boosts nutritional value. Actually, at this point, I feel obliged to mention my product, Curculife, which is a freeze-dried concentrate of nutrient-dense turmeric from Nutrition Farms. I was actually involved at every stage of the production, so I've got a bit of a personal link. This product also has a 9% organic black pepper additive to magnify the uptake. It's been shown that pepperine can increase up to 2,000-fold the increase, the uptake of curcumin. You can source that online if you're interested via our web, sh- our web shop. Polyphenols are the other nutrients well-researched to help slow the formation of ages. Again, I've got to sing the praises of a, another of our new products. I'm going to do a little bit of advertising here. What the hell? Uh, so this new product's made from freeze-dried skins and cores of, of our Nutrition Farms apples. We call it Phytoforce. It's a super-concentrated source of several of the most productive polyphenols research for this purpose and that includes resveratrol and chlorogenic acid. It can be sprinkled over meats or it can be included in sauces that can reduce the formation of ages during cooking. Of course it also can be put on your breakfast and give you that big hit of polyphenols and it tastes really nice. So the other key strategy to, to reduce the negative effect of ages, we've talked about it a few episodes ago, it's a really important strategy, it's called autophagy. This is the natural cleanup system that's now considered to be amongst the most potent of the anti-aging tools. This process can be amplified with intermittent fasting because it only kicks in after 14 hours of zero protein or fats or carbohydrates. So 16-8 fasting is really proven now to be a wonderfully beneficial practice where you complete your last meal of the day at 6.30pm and recommence eating at 10.30am. And you can't have anything in between other than maybe herbal teas. Um, During the fasting process, you have water, herbal teas, black coffee, but no food, no sweets. Now, it's all about the last two hours of that daily fast where the action happens. So, you know, 16 hours, uh, 14 of those, nothing much is happening, but that last two hours, that's when autophagy kicks in. There's really compelling research on the benefits of brain autophagy where protein deposits in the brain can actually be cleared during that last two hours of that, of that process. And that improves the messaging of neurons and associated brain health. However, it's also been shown to be highly effective to counter the ravages of ages. So autophagy is just something that it's really a longevity tool that most of us should look at. So let's talk about the cleanup potential of proteolytic enzymes. So two of the key players here are 
And we're talking about these things in their capacity to remove fibrin, plaque, and, and accumulated ages. And two of the key players include serapeptase and natokinase. Or natokinase. So serapeptase is an enzyme created by serratia bacteria in the gut of silkworms. And it's used to dissolve the silkworm co- cocoon to allow the emergence of the moth. It's an enzyme that dissolves non-living tissue, particularly that based on protein and fibrous material. The obvious implication relates to the potential of this enzyme to clear clots, fibrin and protein deposits from our 100,000 kilometres of pipework. However, serapeptase was first utilised therapeutically for its anti-inflammatory qualities and is still used across the world, particularly in Europe, for that purpose. It seems the enzyme can impact the COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes responsible for inflammation, just like the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can do, but without the negative impact. The Japanese were actually the first to use serapeptase as an anti-inflammatory, and it's in many preparations for conditions like migraines, arthritis, fibromyalgia, carpal tunnel syndrome, and osteoporosis. It's also used for chronic sinusitis, and it's used as a mucolytic agent that improves the breathing of asthmatics and those with bronchial issues. The enzyme has also been shown to dissolve biofilms that make it really difficult to treat some bacterial infections, particularly if we're using antibiotics because they can't get through these biofilms. The enzyme can actually be used alone for this purpose, but it also can be used with antibiotics, and there's some very good studies showing that it magnifies the potential of antibiotics to get in and kill those bacteria that are hiding in that biofilm. Now, the late German physician, Dr. Hans Nieper, was a super passionate advocate of serapeptase. He used the enzyme to successfully treat arterial blockages in many of his coronary patients, and he claimed efficacy against stroke. He claimed that this enzyme was more effective than EDTA treatments in the removal of arterial plaque. He also repeatedly reported the shrinking of varicose veins using serapeptase. There's limited research relative to ages, but some studies have reported the potential to break down the collagen cross-linking associated with the formation of ages. The fibrinolytic capacity of serapeptase is certainly well recognized in animal studies, but more research is required to quantify the potential for humans, the benefits for humans. The second enzyme we'll look at uh, is derived from natto, and of course natto is a traditional fermentation technique for soybeans involving the wonderful Bacillus subtilis, or a strain of that organism. Um, so how often does this multifunction creature rear its noble head? In the soil, of course, Bacillus subtilis fixes nitrogen, it solubilizes phosphorus, and it creates chitinase, which can control both pathogenic organisms and insects. And the plant elicits an immune response and associated growth response in humans. It's the basis of an increasingly popular protective therapy called sporebiotics. And now we discover an involvement and an invaluable proteolytic enzyme. Natto, of course, has been consumed in several Asian countries for over 2,000 years. It's believed to be a key contributor to the longevity of the Japanese population. A 2017 paper covering research called the Takayama study. Here it was demonstrated that, that high natto intake was associated with markedly reduced risk of cardiovascular disease 
and significantly decreased risk of mortality from from ischemic heart diseases. When we consider that 31% of all global deaths can be attributed to coronary vascular disease, it seems like the inclusion of natto on the diet might be a bit of a no-brainer. Natto is a pretty cool food, food because it also contains large amounts of vitamin K2, as do most fermented foods. A lack of vitamin K2 can cause calcium deposits in arteries, aorta and soft tissues rather than our, in our bones where it's supposed to go. So Nat, let's, talk, let's have a look at this enzyme. Natokinase was first identified in 1980 by Japanese researcher Dr. Hiroyuki Sumi, whom was researching thrombolytic enzymes to try and dissolve dangerous blood clots. He tested over 200 substances before recognising that Natto possessed a substance with unparalleled potency. Since then, the studies of natokinase have been many and varied. The potent fibrinolytic antithrombotic activity has been really well documented, but it's the other proven benefits that are fascinating. All of these relate to cardiovascular health, and that highlights the remarkable proactive therapeutic potential of this enzyme. Now, in both animal and human studies, natokinase has been shown to be antihypertensive, antiatherosclerotic, lipid-lowering, antiplatelet, anticoagulant, and also it's been shown to be neuroprotective. I won't discuss details of all of, the, all of these studies, but I'm going to give a couple of examples to get you excited. In a 2017 study by Ren et al. involving 76 subjects, those involved were given 6,500 FU of natokinase for 26 weeks. Now, this supplementation effectively suppressed the progression of atherosclerosis by significantly reducing carotid plaque size. However, the natokinase treatments also reduced total cholesterol and LDL. So that's, you know, a nice, and it lowered triglycerides as well, and it increased HDL, which is, is the good guy in and pe- people who are pre-diabetic, basically. In a 2008 Korean study by Kim et al., natokinase supplementation resulted in a reduction in both systolic and diastolic blood pressure. In a 2004 study by Shah et al., there was a clear neuroprotective effect in patients suffering from acute ischemic stroke. There are simply no drugs available with the mul- multiple pharmacological properties associated with natokinase. It's a, a remarkably safe, cheap, orally available, and it remains active in the blood for quite a long period. It strikes me that we're looking at a hugely important proactive protection against the disease that kills us most commonly. Let's just look and conclude this segment by talking about 10 enzyme tips and strategies. Number one, the first thing to look for in supplements involves both seropeptase and natokinase. Uh, in either case, you've got to check that the pills are enteric coating. That coating ensures that they can make their way through that hard early stages of the digestive system without being damaged. Number two, there's a question of therapeutic application rates. It's important to understand the measurement terms. For example, 100 milligrams of natokinase is equivalent to 2,000, I mentioned FUs, that stands for fibrinolytic units, or FU. The standard suggested dose is 100 milligrams or 2,000 FUs twice a day. So that's 100 milligrams, 2,000 FUs twice a day. That's a therapeutic dose. However, 
Some researchers involved as much as 6,000 FUs per day or higher. Seropeptase potency is measured as seropeptase units or SPU. A typical therapeutic dose would involve 120,000 SPU twice a day. Now you can source this as I've mentioned before on iHerbs and various other sites. Uh, it's easily accessed. Number three, both of these enzymes should always be taken between meals or on an empty stomach so that they're not wasted on digesting the protein in your food rather than the unwanted protein and fibre deposits in your blood and elsewhere. Number four, ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo biloba can thin blood, so it shouldn't be used in conjunction with natokinase as you might overdo that effect. Similarly, you should be careful about taking natokinase if you're on aspirin or other blood thinning medication. Number five, lipase would be a good inclusion in your protective regime if you're going to get into this kind of enzyme supplementation because you know now you're starting to become enzyme aware. Many of us are in the process of exhausting our genetic endowment of lipase production and this is obvious implication, has obvious implications for fat-based plaque, triglycerides, cholesterol and potentially, and potentially even the fat component of ages. Interestingly, there's an absolutely delicious food source that can effectively serve as a lipase supplement. I'm talking about one of the nicest flavours on the planet. I'm talking about cream. How, however, there's an important proviso here. It's got to be raw cream because the pasteurisation process removes the substantial lipase component found in raw cream. Cream is, of course, almost pure fat, so it comes equipped with really, really high doses of lipase to digest that fat. The raw cream can also be better for those that suffer from lactose intolerant because it naturally contains lactase, the enzyme that digests the milk sugar lactose. And that's me, I'm lactose intolerant, but I can have raw cream and raw milk with no problem. Once again, lactase is destroyed during the high heat involved in pasteurization. So I can drink raw milk until the cows come home, if you'll excuse the pathetic pun. Number six, serapeptase is particularly effective against inflammation and pain when combined with other natural anti-inflammatories like turmeric, ginger, and boswellia. So a good thing to combine if you've got inflammation issues, take your serapeptase supplement with some turmeric, some ginger, or some boswellia. Similarly, natokinase can be combined with garlic, and there's some good research on a synergistic impact when when particularly in relation to lowering blood pressure. So natokinase and garlic for dropping blood pressure. Finally, it's important to be patient with supplementation of both of these enzymes because it's been shown it can take several weeks to see results. Well, I hope you've now got a better understanding of the potential of proteolytic enzymes. I think there's a great deal to be gained from their inclusion in a proactive wellness regime. So that kind of wraps up the health component of this episode, but we'll round off this information pack segment with a little bit more humour. Now what shall I share this time? I know, let's have a bit of a cheeky one. There were several ducks in the park blowing bubbles, and a police officer gave them a ticket. They were finally turned up in court, and the first duck went in to see the judge, and the judge said, What's your name? And why are you here? And the duck said, my name is Quack and I'm here for blowing bubbles in the park. And the judge said, 
less than a crime. You're free to leave. Please send the next duck in. So the next duck comes in and the judge says, what's your name and why are you here? And the duck said, my name is Quack Quack and I'm here for blowing bubbles in the park. And the judge said, for God's sake, that's not a crime. You're free to go. Please send the next duck in as you leave. So the third duck comes in and the, ju- and the judge says, let me guess, your name is Quack 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 and you're here for blowing bubbles in the park. And the duck said, no, my name is Bubbles. Okay. Okay, I think it's probably need to fit an Irish joke in at this point. A man stumbles in and up to the only other patron in the bar and asks if he can buy him a drink. Why, of course, me boy, comes the reply. And the first man then asks, where are you from then? I'm from Ireland, replies the second man. The first man responds, you don't say, I'm from Ireland as well. Let's, let's have another drink. Let's have a drink to Ireland, of course, says the second man. I'm curious, the first man then asks, where in Ireland are you from? Dublin, comes the reply. I, I can't believe it, said the first man. I'm from Dublin too. Let's have another drink. Let's have a drink to Dublin, of course, said the second man. Curiosity again strikes, and the first man asks him, what school did you go to then? St Mary's, replied the second man. I graduated in 62. That's unbelievable, the first man said. I went to St. Mary's and I graduated in 62 as well. About that time, in comes one of the regulars and sits down at the bar. What's been going on, he asked the bartender. Nothing much, said the bartender. The O'Malley twins are just drunk again. Well, it's time for the Nutrition Farming Podcast interview and I've got a really special treat for you this time around. Joel Williams was a really important part of my agronomy team for quite some time before he chose to move to Europe. He's got some really wonderful teaching skills that many many of you might be familiar with, and he was actually my co-presenter for several years and seminars in several countries around the world. He's since gone on to develop quite an impressive solo teaching career, and he's in really strong demand for conferences across the globe. And he's currently in the midst of an eight-week seminar tour in several countries. Now, Joel and I have spent the last two days, along with a dozen other presenters, as part of the YLAD Living Soils 20-year anniversary conference in Young in New South Wales. Rhonda and Bill Daly have been really strong proponents of all things regenerative for two decades, and they're actually a rare example of consultants whom are literally walking their talk on a large-scale grazing operation. So, welcome to the Nutrition Farming Podcast. I was really keen to have a chat when I realised we are on the same speaking platform, You've travelled from Canada and we've not seen each other over the COVID years. What were your feelings about the last couple of days with the Farm Day and the conference? Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the conference. It was, yeah, as you said, there was a good lineup of speakers, um, quite a diverse array of topics, which actually just really seamlessly melted into each other, really well themed. Uh, and I thought um, many of the presentations were very complimentary. And uh, yeah, some other great speakers there too. So uh, plus we had a little bit of a field component. We got a, had, a, had a half a day outside to go look at some compost. Yeah, and we looked at some of Bill's uh, toys. He's, he's got some wonderful toys there. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, uh, that huge roller crimper and, and, and the toe and fert machine and all these things being demonstrated. And of course, a wonderful compost extracting machine that he utilizes. And of course, he's got a composting operation. He produces some wonderful compost. 
So, so let's get started. I, I noticed, because I listened to your presentations over these last couple of days, that you've taken quite a deep dive into foliar nitrogen. In fact, I hear you've developed an online course about nitrogen management that's doing well. Let's chat about foliar. And obviously, there's really huge interest in this subject with the huge increases in end prices. Tell me about foliar nitrogen. Mm, yeah, well, it's a, <laughs> a it's, it's a four week ten lecture course. Right? There's a lot to say. How, how much time I'm have you? Pay got? you? I didn't realise. <laughs> There's a lot to say on this. Yeah, I mean, you. I think you you hit the nail on the head. There is such interest because of the fertiliser prices in how do we achieve more with less? And undoubtedly, foliar nitrogen is one such of those strategies. And uh, so, yeah, really what I tried to do with that course is look at many different aspects of that topic. It might sound like one quick, easy topic. Well, mix some, mix some nitrogen with water, put it in the spray tank and off you go. But actually, there's a lot of depth to this topic in terms of how the plant takes up and uses and metabolizes nitrogen, but also then through to the spray technology and how we apply it, what time some of those important factors were the time of day, the formulation, what we mix up, what are the additives and synergists. Uh, and how all of this is really important to driving the success of that approach. It's not what we want to do is avoid the spray and pray approach. Yes, you know, you've I really agree. got to design it with specific intention, and that's what that course is really you, all and about. And you mentioned the, the many forms of plant-available nitrogen, of course, including the obvious things like ammonium, uh, ammonium nitrogen, nitrate nitrogen, urea, aminos, bacteria, proteins, peptides. Do you want to, want to talk about those various sources mm. for a little bit? Yeah, sure thing. The, the, one of the key messages here is that it is m so much more than just those inorganic forms and nitrate and ammonium that we often think about and talk about. If you punch in the nitrogen cycle into Google images, you'll come up with literally hundreds and hundreds of different nitrogen cycle images, all of which, 99.9% .9 of which, just put nitrate and ammonium as the two forms that actually enter the plant. The, urea, uh, the plant can take up urea as urea. The plant can take up larger, more complex molecules, organic molecules, like amino acids, as you say, proteins, and all the way through to bacteria, this whole phenomenon of the rhizophagy or rhizophagy cycle, where even um, the, the plant can access nitrogen from these larger, more complex sources, these biological sources, um, not just the simple ions, those simple inorganic forms. No, the rhizophagy or rhizophagy, and it's interesting because the guy who's done most work calls it calls it uh, rhizophagy, and the, the, the dictionary tells us it's rhizophagy, but whichever, um, that concept is really like this massive awakening to the fact that um, you know, we thought plants were sort of absorbing nutrients from the soil in various manners, and maybe microbes were helping along the way, but this concept of, of plants literally consuming microorganisms, creating a superoxide kind of uh, oxidant that digests the cell or, or strips the cell wall and then eating the microbes and then spitting some of the guys without their cell walls back into, back into, the, uh, into the area around the root zone. Uh, and those guys then share what they've learned about this prison they've just escaped from and then give more back. So there's wonderful communication. And it's kind of this whole brave new world that no one even understood. And it makes you really, really aware that, that the concept of, of killing off your microbes with many of the things we're doing has become a bit more serious than we thought. You were literally killing the golden goose in some context. Yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. And, you know, on those organic forms, they... Um, they are actually very valuable sources of nitrogen for the plant. They, these more larger complex molecules, they're actually more efficient for the plant to use those because when the plant takes up the inorganic forms, it has to expend energy 
to turn those inorganic forms into organic forms, into the amino acids and onwards into proteins. So if we were to feed the plant those organic forms directly, we are shortcutting that metabolic process, thereby saving the plant's energy. And therefore, that plant can use that energy for other growth processes, uh, yes, for the yield and, and enhancements, etc. Very good point. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that you favour, you know, actually a combination of natural end sources like maybe aminos or fish, and you combine that with urea, and that gives you the best foliar response. Why is that? Mm. Yeah, there's a real synergy that emerges when we combine inorganic with organic. And the reason here is that when we apply inorganic forms of nitrogen, the plant detects those, it senses those, so it will activate the necessary genes, it will turn on the genes, upregulate the genes that are required to help to produce the enzymes or the catalyst that will help it convert those inorganic forms onwards up that metabolic pathway into the organic forms. Now, equally, if we supply organic forms to the plant, we, acti- we activate and upregulate a different set of genes, the genes that are involved in the latter stages of protein synthesis. So the, the synergy emerges here is that if you apply a combination of inorganic and organic, you activate and upregulate a wider array or all of those genes involved in that full protein synthesis pathway, that full metabolic pathway. And in doing so, when you activate those latter stage genes, it means that those inorganic sources that you apply, as they begin their journey along that pathway, the latter stage genes have already been activated. So it's like the plant has you know, opened up the gate, opened up the doors ready for them. So those inorganic forms then more efficiently move along that pathway all the way through to the end because those latter stage genes are, have been primed and they're ready and waiting yeah, for those in, inorganic forms to it, move along. It makes perfect sense. And, and you mentioned a study involving a sort of a protein hydrosylate, like a liquid fish, for example, aminos and inorganic nitrogen. And the comparison, can you talk a little about that study? Mm, yeah, it was a study on maize looking at a bunch of root traits, root enhancing traits, and they were comparing the enhancement of things like root length and root area per root and root length per root and all sorts of root biomass um, traits that they were measuring. And they were comparing the ability of inorganic nitrogen to stimulate those, uh, organic uh, amino acid to stimulate various root properties versus a protein hydrolysate. And a protein hydrolysate is going to have more of a mixture of those organics, or a little bit of aminos, a little bit of peptides, which are amino acid chains, and then some also slightly larger proteins. So the, the experiment actually provided those three different sources of nitrogen in the exact same quantity of actual nitrogen. So they were equally anal- equal analysis of, in terms from a nitrogen analysis point of view, but just in very different forms, inorganic, amino, and then protein hydrolysate. And what they found is that despite them delivering all the same amount of nitrogen, the energy efficiency of those more protein forms from the protein hydrolysate, like a fish hydrolysate is a good example, yeah. um, that particular input induced the greatest root enhancing response. You had better root biomass, better root length, root area, these types of things. So even though the analysis was the same, the form of nitrogen that was delivered made a big impact on the overall increases of root biomass. And, and it's interesting because we sell thousands, hundreds of thousands of litres uh, of liquid fish to a Vietnamese company, and they call the product root well, and it's probably quite appropriate from what you're describing. There you go. And yeah. I've not thought about this. But while we're talking nitrogen and perhaps cofactors involved in nitrogen utilisation and uptake, I'm really interested in your take on nickel. It's a mineral that we've not measured, and in my company and my, my agronomy team, we don't measure it in soil and leaf tests. 
Uh, people like Professor Don Huber have told me that's a mistake, and I think it's way past time I started looking a little more at a little more in depth at this particular mineral. I think it's an oversight that we haven't. You mentioned, for example, nickel in relation to urea accumulation within the plant, but can you talk a little bit about your experience with nickel? Mm, yeah, sure. So without nickel, the plant can't build the urease enzyme, and that's the enzyme that helps the plant process urea, convert urea, um, and turn it into those amino acids and proteins. And very simply, if we don't have that nickel, we can't build urease, that means urea, when it is absorbed by the plant, that urea can get stuck as urea. It's kind of like a bottleneck where that urea cannot move, uh, it cannot be hydrolyzed, broken apart, liberate that nitrogen to help build amino acids. It gets stuck as urea and therefore it can build up and then cause urea toxicity and, and often scorch. When we talk about scorch, some many farmers I'm sure have been spraying foliar nitrogen before and uh, or even nitrogen through the dribble bar and inducing the problems of scorch. Um, that can be caused by a few different things, but one of which is an accumulation of urea because urea is stuck as urea. It can't uh, be converted onwards via the urease enzyme, which nickel is a part of. So yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, however, to measure. Um, you won't typically find it being done in a plant analysis, uh, tissue or sap, because no, it's, it's, it's required in such low quantities. Yeah. So we don't, it's too, too small to kind of really op optimize the ideal level. Uh, it's very, very fine there. So it's, you don't normally find that. The general rule loosely could be here that it's somewhat similar requirements to molybdenum yeah, so in that kind of ballpark. 20 or 30 grams would be sufficient in the foliar spray. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so for nickel sulfate, yeah, that's yep. right. Um, up to about 50 grams of nickel sulfate. Uh, so it sounds like just something that would be doing, you can't do any harm with 50 grams. It's something that's probably worth doing for most people. However, we must be careful also, be mindful. Nickel is also a heavy metal, you know, and yes, so right. it's, uh, you don't want to overdo it. So there are a few rules that I have here. Um, if your soils generally are more acidic, the nickel will be more available. Yeah. And if you, if you have a history of organic amendments, manure, compost, anything like that, typically you're going to have a nickel component coming through uh, into that. So if you have um, acidic soils with a history of organic amendments, it might not be required. Yeah. But if you have more alkaline soils and no history of organic amendments, this would be the type of situation where nickel could be quite appropriate. Yeah, okay. that's good, good advice. I've driven home for years the need for molybdenum and sulfur when we're talking about the conversion of nitrates into protein via the nitrate reductase enzyme, and I notice you've got a similar focus. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the plant, it doesn't want uh, nitrates, it doesn't want urea, it doesn't want ammonium. Those are all just building blocks, essentially, for it to build those amino acids and, and really, more importantly, the proteins. And uh, yeah, you're right, moly is really important for the conversion of, of uh, nitrate. Um, but also iron is involved, because first That's nitrate important. has to be converted to nitrite, and then you need iron for the nitrite reductase enzyme. It's the next step in that chain. And so that nitrite then has to be reduced over to uh, ammonium, where then it can move onwards and be converted into the amino acid glutamine. So, yeah, you need that's those three key nutrients there. You need moly, sulfur, and iron ultimately to process that nitrate. And we find molybdenum really seriously lacking in so many soils. I mean, it's hard to measure, but um, it's just lacking in most soil tests and most tissue tests. So, mm. um, we some, the agronomists tell me it might be as high as 80% the shortage. So, uh, you know, obviously there's some gains in quite small amounts of, to get that whole that protein conversion happening. Mm, that's right, yeah. And, and well, you know, on that point, coming back to our, circling back to our earlier point that the organic forms like aminos and proteins are more efficient because they save the plant's metabolic energy. 
Equally, when you start feeding the plant more of those organic forms of nitrogen, you also lower the demand for things like moly and sulfur yes. and iron or nickel because sure, sure. you don't need those anymore because you're delivering the nitrogen higher up the metabolic pathway already as organic forms. Yeah, good point. Um, I've long ar argued that nitrates are uptaken with water and, and an oversupply creates sort of a nutrient dilution effect with the water that carries them in and that plant then subsequently can become something of a calling card for insects. Now, you've elaborated on that insect nitrogen link and you were talking specifically about uh, the re in relation to complex proteins and the attraction of insects. Can you elaborate, tell us a bit about that concept? Yeah, sure. It's really this point that you know, all living organisms have a, a, a desire and a hunger for amino acids. We like amino acids, microorganisms like amino acids, insects like amino acids. They're the building blocks for all of us. But those amino acids, of course, are used as building blocks to build very different types of proteins. And, you know, what a micro build turns that amino into builds different proteins to what an insect does or to what we do. So amino acids are highly competed for. They're highly nutritious and highly competed for form of nitrogen. Now, however, the insects, they cannot digest so well the more complete and complex proteins. And that's that final step of the metabolic pathway is that once we get amino acids accumulating, they can link together to form more complete and complex proteins. And insects can't digest those. So the argument here is, is that um, as much as we need to convert nitrates and ammonium and urea onwards to aminos, that's really important. But then we've got to finish the final step and, and link those together into more complete and complex proteins. And that's where we can see greater inherent insect resistance because now the plant becomes unattractive to the insect because it cannot digest those more complex And proteins. the cofactors, of course, for that completion are a variety of trace minerals. Yeah, once again, trace yeah. elements yeah. feature highly. Um, particularly also, there's a couple of uh, major elements, particularly phos, uh, phosphorus, sulfur, and magnesium are also really, really important for that final step, along with, again, yeah, boron, manganese, zinc, yeah. for example. Yeah, a couple of others. Um, actually, many farmers have noted an incongruous scenario where they sometimes see an increase in insect pressure following the use of an insecticide, I mean, it seems absurd, but it's quite often commented upon. Can you explain the pathways for that particular phenomenon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, plants, they, they're rooted in the ground. And when they encounter stressful situations, of course, they can't move. They can't run away. They can't hide under the shade of a tree if it's a hot day. They can't move into the warm house if it's a cold day. Uh, and if insects or something is attacking them, they can't run away. And so they've had to develop all sorts of, of course, defense mechanisms and stress alleviating mechanisms to help them deal with and tolerate all of those various different stresses. And this is where um, some of the different proteins play a role. We often think about protein in the context of quality protein, building the nutritional value of the, of the food for us to eat or for livestock to feed on, for example. But the plant can produce all sorts of other different proteins, what would be called more metabolic proteins, um, compounds that have functional value. And so many of the defense chemicals, for example, that plants can produce to ward off either disease or also insects, um, they are also proteins. They're just different types of proteins, these more metabolic proteins, not structural proteins. And so um, when the plant is stressed, and that can be heat stress, as I said, or cold stress, or after the application of a pesticide. Um, these pesticides, of course, they're not going to kill the plant. Uh, for example, if it's a fungicide, it's designed to kill fungus. Uh, it's not going to necessarily kill a plant. But nonetheless, the plant doesn't necessarily thrive or love those 
compounds, uh, when they enter the plant, the plant has to expend energy to detoxify them, to break yeah, them down. They're an alien, basically. They're an alien compound, yeah. yeah. So they're not going to kill the plant, but they're still not necessarily favorable. So in order for the plant to detoxify, it produces a special groups of detoxification proteins. And they do the job of then breaking that pesticide down. And this is why you know, many farmers might have seen after the application of a pesticide, maybe the plant will look a little sick or sad for a day or two, and maybe a little yellow or a little stressed for a few days, and then it will pull through. And that's that process of it trying to detoxify first before it can then pull through. And that's when the insects come in. Yeah, yeah. so this, this, the stress of that application uh, of the pesticide, it induces a process called protein catabolism or protein breakdown. And that means basically the plant is taking some of those other protein reserves and breaking them down back into the building blocks, back into amino acids, so that it can then use those amino acids to rebuild different proteins, i.e. rebuild the detoxification proteins. So that stress response induces protein breakdown that liberates and frees up free lots of amino acids, free amino acids, which of course is what insects have a higher yep. preferential feeding for. Then so they then come. they swoop in and go for that amino acid rich plant. Um, and so one of the um, opportunities here to uh, help farmers deal with this is that actually, if you again include a source of amino acids with your pesticides, so maybe your example of a fish hydrolysate again or other amino-based products, if you include those with the pesticide, what you're doing is providing fresh and new external amino acids for the plant that it can immediately use those to build the detoxification proteins. Great. Great it, it, therefore, we Great limit idea. some of that protein breakdown and catabolism and just use the, ex no, that's, the external. I love it. That's a really good concept. Thank you. Um, you focus more on, on roots or roots, as our American counterparts call them, uh, than most. So, so let's talk about the importance of a below-ground focus. Yeah, roots is a favorite topic of mine and um, something I've been reading and researching on for, for quite a few years now. I like to keep up to date with all that's happening in the world of roots and the below ground interactions. And one of the very important things that um, we know about roots from a, from a soil organic matter point of view is that actually it is primarily roots and root litters, root residues, that as they break down and then digested in the soil, that they primarily are the driver of building soil organic matter. The above ground residues, the shoots, make a very minor contribution, very small, very minor. There was a well-known study for a review paper from 2017 where they reviewed lots of other studies that were looking at what kind of a contribution that shoots versus roots make. And it was a range across all of these different studies, but the average that it kind of comes out to is roughly about five times. So roots are five times more effective at forming soil organic matter than shoots are. And part of that reason is nothing special necessarily about roots apart from their location because they're, <laughs> they're, the, they're down there in the soil and, and down at depth, microbes can get access to them and then very effectively use them to build soil organic matter as compared to the shoots which sit on top and then are more prone to being oxidized yes. and lost as CO2. Exactly. It's a great point. It's an incredibly relevant point. There's a suggestion that many of the hybrids are often about that showy above ground display, but when you actually compare roots with some of the earlier original varieties, there's much less substantial root systems. What's your feelings on that one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, how we bred high yielding varieties uh, with the Green Revolution um, was, we often talk about that in the context of breeding, we bred shorter plants that could also put then more um, energy into grain, into that yield component. But really what we did is we shifted the, in terms of that breeding, we shifted the plant's ability 
where it then will prioritize more energy, more carbohydrate, more carbon, more, more, more photosynthates into above ground biomass, into that biomass and into that yield. Um, and that has to come at a cost, comes from somewhere. So when the plant prioritizes above ground production, it is draining or drawing from the below ground. So modern varieties, the very reason that they are high yielding is because the plant puts a lot of energy up at the sacrifice of roots. Yep. So modern varieties have much smaller roots. And yeah, you're right. If you compare that, say, to, to some of the einkorns or some of the uh, traditional weeds, or the ancient weeds, the types of things, the ancient cereals, um, they have much bigger root systems. Yeah. But they also have a bit less yield. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly, it's that balance. They just have the opposite balance. But the counterpoint to that is, is that with that bigger root system, that bigger root system can explore a greater volume of soil and therefore access more nutrients and more moisture. So, um, you know, in terms of the discussion about, you know, high efficiency, lower input type systems, yes. um, that, that bigger root system can help you leverage and utilize the fertility that's already in the soil and potentially access a greater soil moisture for drier climates and dry areas. And so you can actually lower your input costs. Um, and so the, the overall profitability may not necessarily there, be... There, there really worse. needs to be some research because it's such a huge story from a climate change perspective that perhaps we do need to have a more of a happier medium in that instance. And there's a sort of double whammy in, in the fact that we've lost a lot of the below grade, ground action in the terms of switching from from perennials to annuals. Do you, do you want to talk on that for a second? Yeah, yeah. So I would say actually, yeah, there's three major factors that have driven... Um, this process of less root production. One is the genetics that we just talked about, and, and the other one is this transition from perennials to annuals, um, annual um, crop food uh, crops, etc. The very nature of a perennial means that it knows that it will be back again next year. So perennials, they allocate more carbon below ground to build roots, to store in roots as reserves that can help them uh, regrow and, and bounce back that following year. An annual plant, of course, does not invest so heavily in roots. It's all about reproducing that year as quickly as it can. Exactly. It's all about seed right there and then. So, so straight away, annuals already, they're all about tops and seeds. They produce less roots. Perennials invest much more heavily in roots and they uh, grow much bigger root systems. So it was this move away from perennials and then the breeding. And the last factor has been nitrogen applications. We all know that nitrogen helps to drive yield. Uh, it's very good at that, of course, we're all aware. The very reason that nitrogen drives yield is because it enhances, again, above-ground biomass or yield. So nitrogen really improves above-ground biomass, but it doesn't necessarily always improve the below-ground biomass. And uh, there's a bit of nuance here. Of course, if the plant is extremely deficient in nitrogen, some application of nitrogen can increase the root biomass initially. So optimizing your nitrogen inputs is very important. That will increase the root biomass up into the optimum. Yeah. And we are all familiar with the yield plateau. The yield goes up and uh, once we reach that plateau, it, it levels off. And it doesn't matter if you keep applying more nitrogen, you're not going to get more yield. The yield will plateau off. Yeah. Now, roots, however, behave very differently. Once we reach that plateau, any more nitrogen that we keep applying, so excess nitrogen, doesn't just plateau the root biomass production, it actually suppresses it, it compromises it. So as we over-apply nitrogen, increase nitrogen, we are suppressing root growth, suppressing and reducing root biomass. And that's a mechanism by which um, excess nitrogen can actually lead to less soil organic matter, um, is that we are producing less roots because of that high nitrogen, 
And those roots are five, roughly five times more efficient and, and important in building soil organic matter than the shoots. Yeah. So now we are suppressing the very biomass that we need to build soil organic matter. And this is one of the mechanisms by which excess nitrogen can be a problem. Yeah, and so part of that story of, of nitrogen, and there's that commonly bandied story that for every kilogram over and above what you need, you're burning 100 kilograms of carbon. And that burning, it might not be as simple as burning, it's much more complex. There are other... Um, mechanics in place as you've just mentioned and mm. it makes perfect sense what you've just described yeah that's great right. and we can actually look at that the other way too graham it's actually as we accumulate too much carbon in the soil um, the microbes can become nitrogen deficient and so it's not just about carbon mining or burning the soil organic the carbon out of soil organic matter if we accumulate too much carbon also which is possible like when we have a lot of um, wide carbon to nitrogen ratio residues, a lot of wide litters, yeah. the, the problem that you're aware of of nitrogen drawdown, we would often talk about in that context, the microbes can actually go into soil organic matter to liberate the nitrogen out of soil organic matter. We always talk about it, the nitrogen burns the carbon out yeah, of, it, it, goes, the, it yeah. goes the other way too. So even under nitrogen limiting conditions, this can also um, burn soil organic matter because it's liberating out the nitrogen and then carbon comes out also inconsequentially, which can then potentially be lost. So it can be both carbon or nitrogen mining depending on the context. Yeah. And that's why we also, nitrogen of course is a tricky nutrient to manage. We don't want too little or not enough. And we certainly don't want too much either. It's uh, Goldilocks in the middle. And still talking nitrogen, you differentiate quite clearly between the root exudate pathway compared to the mycorrhizal path pathway in terms of nitrogen sharing. Would you like to talk more about that? Yes, yeah, sure. So uh, legumes are, um, are great at sharing nitrogen, not just when they die and decay. That's then sure that's the main and primary pathway of nitrogen cycling and sharing into the next crop. But even in real time, legumes can share nitrogen with under more diverse cropping systems, companion crops and intercrops, for example. And there are two other pathways by which nitrogen is shared. One is simply through root, through root exudates. We talk about root exudates. We often use this word sugars uh, to describe root exudates, sugars, carbohydrates. But root exudates are so much more than that. Uh, in, in particular, it's very common for all plants, but especially legumes who fix nitrogen, to release amino acids as root exudates. And so when the plant leaks these amino acids, if we have a non-legume, a nitrogen-hungry crop right nearby as a companion, a cereal, for example, or oilseed, um, they will scavenge that, those root exudates away from the legume and feed on those highly favorable, highly efficient forms of nitrogen, the amino acids, the organic forms. So we have literally a one pathway through just root exudation and stealing and scavenging of those root exudates. And then we have another pathway if both of the companion plants are both mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal fungi can colonize the legume as well as colonize the non-legume. So then the two root systems are interconnected through the mycorrhizal, common mycorrhizal networks. And once again, the plant, the legume can share, it's usually amino acids, organic forms again, di directly through the mycorrhizal network um, through to the, uh, the non-legume. So um, there is these other real time, this happens in, in real time in the current growing season. And uh, it turns out there was a yeah, really interesting study just quite recently published looking at uh, lucerne or alfalfa being um, paired up with maize. And they showed that under low soil nitrogen, under more nitrogen limiting conditions, that nitrogen is predominantly shared through the mycorrhizal fungi. 
Whereas in soils where we have a little bit better nitrogen availability, better, higher soil nitrogen, actually more of the nitrogen is then transferred through that rutexidate pathway, the scavenging and stealing of those rutexidates. Yes, it's, it's fascinating. And it's that whole microsoil network, such a fascinating concept. I mean, uh, one of the things, one of the studies that I looked at was uh, trees in the forest. You know, you've got the seedling and of course the, the seed was blown or carried by birds and maybe 200 metres away from the mother plant. And she can, via this massive underground internet, which is how often the mycorrhizal network's described, uh, the mother can actually identify her seeds dotted all, you know, hundreds of metres away, and via the network, recognising they're not going to have carbon, there's no light, there's no photosynthesis, or very little photosynthesis at the bottom of a forest floor. Via that network, she'll actually pump carbon specifically to her ch children. So it's kind of like this paternalistic thing mm -hmm. that, yeah, yeah, it's never wise to compare it to, to us, but it's interesting and quite fascinating. Mm, very fascinating, yeah. Um, talking about carbon sequestration in the root zone, one, one of the co-presenters at this conference that we've both just shared was, was Guy Webb, who was, who was another guy who was previously a Nutritech agronomist and did some great work with a company called Loam. Now, these guys have isolated a carbon-building fungi that produces this really stable carbon in the soil. What, what's your opinion? You've got a bit of an understanding. I think you're on their board, are you, or the advisory board? Yeah, 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 I'm on their advisory committee. I help them out a little bit here or there with some thoughts and advice from time to time. And I think, yeah, I think they're a great organization doing great work. And uh, they've identified this very special fungi. It enriches its fungal biomass with melanin. It's a melanized fungi. And uh, when it's kind of like a mycorrhizal fungi, but not... Not, not quite the same, but because it, it, it has a higher groups of plants that it can colonize and form associations with. And equally, is a, there's a trade, like similar, again, similar to mycorrhizal, but um, as this fungi grows, it, it really turns the photosynthetic carbon that's delivered to it, it turns it into this melanin. And that melanin is a very complex and stable form that can then be sequestered for, for a long time because of that complexity. So, yeah, I, I think it's very fascinated. They're doing some very interesting work, and uh, I think they, uh, there's great potential. In yeah, the potential. Doing. I mean, he talked about uh, a European, I can't think it was Denmark or Iceland or something, this massive new machine called the Mammoth that can sequester in, in a year, uh, you know, a billion-dollar machine. And Guy pointed out with their technology, with the research to date, 6,000 hectares uh, of inoculation with this particular fungi of theirs can produce the same amount this billion-dollar machine can produce in a year. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fraction, a tiny fraction, fraction, fraction of the cost. Of the cost so it's yeah. really exciting. There's some really good things happening out there. Very good, yeah. yeah. Let, let's talk cover cropping because everyone is at the present. Uh, you make a good point that, you know, it's always been about the more the merrier, and there is some significant. I mean, I would dispute you on that one a little bit. I mean, I remember... Uh, working with the guy, one of the guys who owns Santa Seeds in the US, and he described these, you know, huge numbers of infield trials where, twelve blocks all with different blends. You know, they might be just start off with an oats, and if it's a winter crop or whatever, and then start bringing multiple blends. And, and you can't put fertilizer. They've seen how plants interact and how they can synergistically produce better root systems or or better yields or better biomass or whatever. Uh, and and weirdly, and not weirdly, but interestingly. Uh, the 12th flock, he just chucked whatever was left, and there might be 30 seeds in it. But in multiple sites in 40 states, uh, the 12th block outperformed every other block. And that's a bit of an example of the more the merrier. But yeah. uh, you differ a little bit because you talk about something called functional diversity. You want to explain that? Mm, sure. It's, you know, I really do agree with the benefits of diversity. I am totally on board with them too and, and make a conscious effort and through my work to share some of the research and literature about those benefits. It's just a slightly nuanced picture here that, 
it's not necessarily diversity per se, or, or we could also say that it is not diversity that is the mechanism of the benefit. It's by adding another plant species, therefore, sure, by default, increasing the diversity, but by adding a different plant, you're, you're adding a different plant that has a very different specific function. It might be a taproot or a deeper rooter or a leg fixing nitro or phosphorus, you know, whatever the benefit of that is. So it's adding a new function and it's that function that it adds, that it brings, is then the mechanism by which that more diverse plot could outperform a lesser diverse. So it's just this nuance between not diversity per se, but uh, it is called then functional diversity. So yes. we want plants with different functions. So for example, you know, we could do a, um, we could blend together a bunch of cereals and they're all, you know, you could have a high diversity of many cereals or we could put together many legumes and have eight different legumes, for example, or eight different cereals. Um, they're all very similar plants. You're not adding different yeah, functions. what you mean there. So uh, it's really yeah. that kind of nuance there. Yeah, yeah I agree. I understand the, the, the point there. Um, just a couple of moving on a little bit from the roots for a second. We'll talk a little bit about silica. Uh, you've certainly recognised the importance of that kind of missing mineral that we don't test for in many instances, and we now understand it's equally as important as calcium for cell strength and the new studies and, and a lot of them that are suggesting that it may well be amongst the most powerful of immunolicitors. But you get particularly excited about the potential of silica for stress management, and that's pretty important when we've got this huge increase in both abiotic and biotic stress that are part of this kind of brave new world of climate change farming. Can you talk a little bit about the use of the potential use of silica for stress management? Yeah, for sure. It's you know this is one of the topics uh, has been one of my pet favourites for many years. I've been following the silicon research for for many years, and it is an impressive body of literature that uh, outline and support the benefits of this mineral. And so, yeah, from the stress point of view, I, I really call it the, the really the master stress mineral. It can help the yep. plant overcome a whole range of stresses. I mean, any stress you can name, there's going to be a paper that supports silicon. And we're talking heat stress, you know, high temperatures or cold frost stress. We could be talking waterlogged conditions or drought conditions. And sex stress. So definitely all of the disease, uh, insect, yeah, pests, diseases, both bacterial and fungal diseases. Uh, and then salinity, sodicity, heavy metals, yep. you name it. Um, silicon can help the plant tolerate adverse conditions, no matter what those adverse conditions are. Yes, and I, I recommend them. We've had great results in all sorts of scenarios, including saline soils, using potassium silicate as the core because it's the water-soluble, most cost-effective form. Uh, and we'll add things like, you know, like kelps and fulvics and things like that into that mix. Tricontinol is, is a really great stress reduce, release. And so you make your own little stress relieving formula for use in all of those instances that you described. It's a, it's a great concept. And, mm. you know, it's a mineral that we've not talked about theoretically. It's not part, it's not an essential mineral, but maybe it will be in the near future because there's mm -hmm. so much research now. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let's talk about a tissue test. And just on that subject with silica, there's not guidelines that I'm familiar. Perhaps there are with sap testing, which we're going to talk about next, but with dry leaf analysis, there aren't reliable guidelines for sweet spots or we're aiming for in terms of ideals with silica. But what we've found is that if we can get to, you know, because you can measure it on a dry leaf analysis, it's actually part of the little package that, that, that's there and sometimes they don't even report it because they don't really know what's ideal and what's not. But you could ask that it be reported for no extra cost. And what we find is that if we can get above 800 parts per million, of silica, then we see some changes that people find of great value, including all the things we just talked about. So that just seems to what we've seen in the field, that that 800 parts per million is what we tend to shoot for. And we've got people with 2,000 parts per million, they don't stop using silica because 
they're seeing so many protective results from that, and 2000 isn't too much, so we don't even know where the high point is. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting. So, so talking about tissue testing, I'm aware that SAP analysis has become hugely popular around the globe, and from our perspective, we've tended to favour dry leaf analysis, um, par partially because there's 40 years of research behind determining those ideal levels. And sometimes, for me, it kind of feels like there might be a bit of guesswork in terms of ideals for SAP testing, it's, it's quite quite new. And there, and, and there are quite clear pros and cons. I think there's probably a role for both, well, there is a role for both. There's pros and cons to both technologies. Mm. And, you know, you've had a lot of experience with both. Would you like to discuss that experience and your opinion of the respective roles of SAP versus dry leaf analysis? Mm. How much time do we have again, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a big question yeah. and a big discussion for sure. And I, the essence of your point is spot on. There are pros and cons to both, um, and I really think that they both can be useful tools. I don't necessarily favour one or the other, um, but I think that they, they can be um, both very valuable. Starting on the SAP analysis, you know, uh, one of the major benefits of the SAP analysis is that, uh, this links back to us, we could start with our conversation on nitrogen earlier, that it tells you about the form of the nitrogen that's in the plant SAP. So it will give you a total nitrogen as well as a reading of the nitrate and ammonium level. And of course, what we want to see is we don't want excess nitrates, we don't want excess ammonium. We want to have some of those nutrients there, but we really want to see the total nitrogen in the optimum range. We want to see it in the target range, but we actually want to see ammonium and nitrate to be quite relatively low. Um, because if we have the opposite where the total nitrogen might be low, but you have high nitrates and high ammonium, that's telling you you've got that backlog in the metabolic pathway we were talking about earlier. You've got all the nitrogen that's in the plant is just in the building block forms and not in those organic forms, the amino yes. and protein forms. So you get that um, extra nuance, which now a tissue analysis, when the machine looks at all that nitrogen, it tells you nothing about the quality of that no, nitrogen. it's a definite failure. I mean, we, we try and compensate by doing nitrate testing, so at least we've got a nitrate picture with a nitrate meter, a handheld yeah. meter, and the agronomists yes. will use that in the field, but you're right. It, would, it is a, you know, a great advantage of SAP analysis that you've got total nitrogen, you've got nitrate, you've got ammonium nitrogen all there, and it's hugely mm. important. It's the most abundant mineral, and it's very good to know that what comprises that total nitrogen picture. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Especially in the context of what we are talking about before, insect attractiveness and insect, insect resistance for the plant. Uh, you've got to have those organic forms, you know. So, so where do you, in what instance do you uh, like, what, what benefits do you think that, that, that uh, dry leaf analysis has? Uh, on the dry leaf is, is, as you pointed out too, it's historical, um, it's historical record of the research that was done to, de to determine and to derive those ideal levels. Generally, it seems the ideal levels for a lot of the SAP analysis is a bit of a rolling ball average, depending on kind of what many samples farmers are sending in samples and the labs are kind of looking at the average of all of those that come in, building these kind of living databases that um, fine tune that to say, okay, here's roughly the average of all of the samples that we process. The obvious negative of that being that if everyone is submitting boron deficient samples, then the, the target range, the ideal range, is, that is being averaged out and therefore becomes the target is, um, is, is, is also or deficient. Submit, or submitting very high nitrogen, so the average becomes much higher than it should be. Sure, Same sure. story, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so the tissue analysis was derived, you know, therefore the ideal levels were done um, a little bit more r rigorously. 
Um, although, again, we could talk about some of the negatives of that, but, but, you know, with solution culture experiments where they would, you know, grow the plants in the exact same nutrient solution with all of the nutrients present, and they would just choose the one nutrient of interest, and you would add none of that one, then you'd add a little bit to the, the next treatment, a little bit to the next treatment, a little bit more, and so you increase the rate of that one nutrient that you're interested in, and you, of course, obviously then watch plant development with having none of that nutrient to excess of that nutrient, and in somewhere in the middle where you've got that sweet spot, you will see biomass production be optimized, and then you can measure, take that leaf, see how much of that nutrient is in that leaf, and then there you've got your, your kind of target level. Um, so the, definitely the ideal levels of the tissue analysis are, are more robust in, in my view. Um, but the, again, the negative of that is that all of that, as I just mentioned, was is based on hydroponic production, mm-hmm. um, where you are only supplying the inorganic soluble salt forms of all of those essential nutrients. Yeah. And like the example we gave before, if you were supplying adequate amino acids, you know, those organic forms of nitrogen, maybe your demand for molybdenum needed to convert that nitrate would be lower uh, because you're supplying it under the organic yes. form. So, so those ideal levels that we have from the traditional tissue analysis, they're based on hydroponic growing systems. Uh, but once you put that same plant in the soil with organisms and organic matter and cycling, it could also change the picture too. And then we so. have the other aspect with plant sap in, in the sense that very commonly the labs are offering top leaf, bottom leaf for the mobile minerals. Oh, and yeah. That's very important in that context. Yeah, it's very valuable strength of the, the sap analysis too. Yeah, But the, in, it, to be fair, there's no reason you couldn't do that in a tissue analysis no, as well, you sample could. the young you and the young. Yeah. Except yeah. that they, they're doing it really cost effectively in one test. Yes, and you have to pay double up. Yes, <laughs> Yeah, that's the point. Exactly. Um, uh, just moving on a bit, I, I've t- typically thought of, of humus and organic matter. In fact, most of us have, have thought of humus and organic matter as interchangeable terms. However, there's a considerable debate now amongst soil scientists, which would amaze some people because they've not heard the story. But the argument now is that humic substances, like the very popular inputs like humic and fulvic acid, it was thought, you know, humus contains humic and fulvic acid. Compost, you're making humic and fulvic acid, but they're saying no, that's not actually the case. Humic and fulvic acid are actually created during the potassium hydroxide extraction. They don't actually exist in the soil or in compost. Organic matter in the soil is actually a large percentage of something called microbial necromass. It's the bodies of, of dead microbes. And that's almost half of it, and the rest is plant material in various stages of decomposition. So can you talk a little bit about this, this debate and your feelings on it? <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny one. Does humus exist? Many yeah, people, it, does, it doesn't even exist. Um, and meaning that when we use techniques to um, measure and look at the soil organic matter, and by that I mean non-destructive techniques, when we use a harsh extractant that we flush through that soil to pull out the organic matter, to pull out that carbon to then measure it, that's a destructive technique. So if we use things like Um, spectroscopy for example which then just non-destructively looks at the sample and we look for this idea of humus or humic substances this idea of these compounds which are highly complex recalcitrant ring structures aromatic ring structures just very large complex molecules which is what humic acid is in our which is what humics that's right that when we look at the soil and the non with those non-destructive techniques we can't see complex molecules. There's no big, large, complex molecule, humic type compounds in there. So the argument is, is that when we, as you said, when we treat the soil with potassium hydroxide and, and dissolve and pull out all of that soil carbon, uh, we actually form humic substances through that process. Yes. We are forming humic and fulvic acids as we do the extract. 
Um, and so now many people feel that hum this idea of humus, meaning large, complex, stable molecules, stable compounds, does not exist. That actually, solid organic matter is, as you mentioned, necromass, um, dead microbial bodies and their waste products, various kind of microbial detritus, so to speak, and some of the other plant compounds. These things are often then stuck together and forming, yes, larger, more complex molecules, but these are lots of little things stuck together to form big things. And They're a, not a, actually... a fungi partially involved in that sticking together and binding together of, the, of that microbial biomass, and hence the aggregate story and so that, forth. That's right, yes, yeah. because fungal hyphae are such strong aggregators, they improve aggregation, they are physically then trapping all of the various bits of carbon, small bits and trapped, bind, kind of sticking them together and binding them together within aggregates. Um, but we also have another fraction of the soil organic matter, which is this the necromass you mentioned. This is the, particularly the dead bodies. How this gets stabilized in, to form then more stable soil organic matter is through two mechanisms. The one you just mentioned there, the physical mechanism of entrapment within aggregates, so yeah. therefore excluding oxygen, excluding microbes so that they can't get access to it and burn it. Yeah. So it's physically entrapped. But then we also have a chemical stabilization. And by this, I mean those dead microbial bodies, the necromass, they actually get stuck to and adhere to the soil colloids, the clay particles. In the same way that uh, we know soils are, clays and silts are negatively charged and can yeah. hold positively charged nutrients, it's those same mineral surfaces that then the microbial bodies get stuck to. And so this fraction is called mineral associated organic matter. And it's particularly this necromass that has a high affinity to get stuck. So this is a chemical bond, a chemical attraction. And a much more positive. stable bond. And this is much more stable than the aggregate um, bond. Good. Yeah, that's, that's right. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Um, I've, I'll just go back to roots for a minute because it's, I'm fascinated with your whole take on the story. Let's talk about the living roots principle and the importance of root exudates. I mean, we always thought, and I've described it forever, that um, basically the plant's from photosynthesis is giving away about a third, 30% of its total glucose exudates, and that becomes this source of microbial energy. And it's not really been thought of until recently as, as actually a carbon building tool, tool that was more about firing up the biology, and that's no longer the thinking. Would you like to explain mm -hmm. that a little bit? Yeah, well, this d links directly to our last question there, our exact conversation, this point about uh, that soil organic matter is around about 50-odd percent made up of this microbial necromass. Necromass, of course, comes from biomass, first the organisms are alive and living. So they, first we have biomass, then they die and form that necromass, which then gets stuck to and, and trapped. So rewinding back, well, first we need to have bi grow biomass, grow the, the living microbes first, the living microbial biomass. And this is then why the root exudates have become a hot topic of discussion and, and why yeah, the living roots soil health principle is, I think, also so important is that those root exudates are the preferred food source of microorganisms. They are highly labor, highly digestible, easy to assimilate, easy to digest. And so when microbes feed on root exudates, they can rapidly grow more biomass. They can immediately feed and immediately multiply, 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 because the food is available, highly readily available, highly digestible, and very efficiently they can grow their bodies. And of course, the more efficiently that they can grow their bodies, all that biomass, when it all dies, we can form more necromass and therefore sequester um, these more stable mineral-associated organic matter fractions 
through uh, more efficient biomass production and then necromass stabilization. The roots it, are certainly important in that story. That's right, yeah. Uh, if, uh, well, sorry. I was going to add, if, if we compare that to then the, um, the, the stubble or the, the physical litter, the structural parts of the plant, so the lignin and the cellulose, the counterpoint there is, is that the plant, the microbes, sorry, they cannot just immediately assimilate lignin. They can't just immediately absorb that and grow biomass. So first, they have to digest it. First, they have to break it down. Which is a very energetic process. That's right. So they yeah. expend all this energy to produce all these digestive enzymes externally, and all of that is coming in at energetic cost. And, and the microbes haven't even started feeding yet. So they're just digesting, digesting, digesting. Meanwhile, our, our microbial friends feeding on rutexidates have already doubled their population well, many times over. True. So it's a more efficient source, and uh, therefore rutexidates are uh, of growing interest in terms of actually forming that necromass and stable carbon. And, and you know, both of us, of course, are, are huge fans of, of foliar fertilising. And you know, it's, I argue, of course, that foliars can fast track that chlorophyll density, which means you've got short, more sugar factories, factories, and you are feeding more uh, glucose, more sugars to the microbes. And with this kind of newer understanding. I mean, now we can start really talking about foliars as being quite a highly effective carbon building tool. What do you think of that concept? Absolutely, I agree. Um, I would say through two mechanisms. One, by delivering uh, nutrients through the foliar, particularly certain nutrients, we can increase root biomass production. You know, those nutrients are translocated down to the roots and we can grow more roots. So we can increase root biomass production, things like boron, phosphorus, of course, which are very important for root, root growth. So by topping those up through the foliar, we can grow more root biomass. And as I mentioned, root biomass is five times more likely than the shoot biomass. So that's one mechanism. And then, as you point out, we can also use nutrition, foliar nutrition to prime photosynthesis to prime root exudate production. So then we get more of these highly labile, highly available carbon sources leaking out of the root system, again, driving those microbial interactions. So yes, yeah, I right. agree. I think foliar is a, a great tool as well. Yeah. And I thought we did touch upon the, the link between excess nitrogen and reduced root growth, which many mm. people don't put together. So we won't, I was going to ask a question on that, but we did actually cover it. Um, just talking organic matter still on the farm day with this conference we've just been part of, we saw some really quite remarkable compost that Bill and Rhonda produce. They make commercial compost on a smaller scale, but beautiful, high-quality compost. Uh, and they talked about their recipe, and it was quite complex, but a part of the equation was the addition of a clay component, 6-8% of a clay component, a fibre, you know, usually a sort of a high clay soil is a good way rather than just big hunks of sticky clay uh, to mix it through and so forth into the compost, and the inclusion of some basalt crush, crusher dust. Would you like to explain each of the, the benefits of those two things, which are great additives for any compost. We would never make a compost without those two, but I'll let you explain why they're of, of importance. Yeah, sure. Well, of course, the the... The crusher dust is great from the broad spectrum diversity of the nutrition, the trace minerals and, and some of that kind of thing and the potential there to um, also form some of, you know, there's a lot of interest in recently in, in uh, sequestering inorganic carbon in, in soils dust, yeah, with things huge. like crusher dust. So that's, that one is good in that sense. But I, the, the point about clay, I think, is a huge opportunity for, for compost producers and it links back to exactly what we were just talking about in terms of soil carbon stabilization. I talked about that dead microbial necromass that gets stuck to and adhered to the clay colloids, to the clay surfaces, this chemical attraction, chemical stabilization. Um, we can repeat or mimic or replicate the exact same thing in a compost pile by having that clay 
or even even as you say i agree a clay soil a good mineral soil um and you know this was a common technique and often used by a lot of the biodynamic compost uh, methodologies to put a bit of soil in the compost and what that does is provide min again those mineral surfaces that then not only can the uh, what we would dip, you know traditionally say is well all the humus can stick to that that clay surface and um, those mineral surfaces and the fungi can wrap uh, the two together and create that stable carbon and it stabilizes yeah. that's right and and so i would say that from this you know emergent understanding of the necromass contribution to soil organic matter we're also trying to repeat the same thing in a compost pile so you can get you of course you're going to have all those microbes that are constantly growing and dying growing dying within a compost pile so if you've got more mineral surfaces in that compost pile then those dead bodies are more likely to stick and then be stabilized because without that microbial necromass will become a food source for the next generation of microbes they, yes. the next generation will eat that it's a valuable food source too um, but once it is chemically adhered to those colloids, to those mineral surfaces, that's how it is then stabilized and becomes a little more inaccessible. So I would argue that one of the probably most valuable inputs I think any, any producer who's making compost should be including is a clay mineral soil component for, for that reason. And one of those components, of course, can be soft rock phosphate, which is a clay material mm -hmm. if you need phosphorus. And many people don't. It's very important to understand this, that... There's no point in putting more phosphorus into a soil that's got high phosphorus, and many people do. We had a problem with composting uh, chicken manure. Um, incredibly cheap, inexpensive way of adding phosphorus in an available form. We were 25 parts per million on the farm. We finished a year and a half of quite good doses of a 50-50 compost green waste mixed, uh, sorry, chicken manure green waste mixed in a compost. And the next time we test, we should have tested earlier, 127 parts per million. I mean, it's just a phenomenally most cost-effective way actually of, of, of lifting of lifting uh, phosphate levels is chicken manure compost that it really is effective and cost-effective surprisingly more cost-effective than it should be because people aren't sitting down with a calculator and figuring what they're getting with that ton of chicken manure when you do the sums it's probably three hundred dollars worth and uh, not that you get all of that in that year but you know you pay thirty dollars i mean why because no one's sitting down with a calculator so i sort of make that point but soft rock phosphate if you need phosphate and of course it's also got 26 percent silica and calcium and quite a good load of trace minerals and it serves that double role of mineralization for the compost along with the potential of helping form that clay hemus crumb which was siegfried lubke's great contribution to composting science as he was the sort of first one and now of course all of the science that you're talking about and all the, new, the newer things is actually confirming that he was right mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. i agree yeah. yeah that's true well i guess that's uh pretty much reached the end of our, our time together we've had our our 60 minutes almost and that's about as much time as i can allocate <laughs> since, look, since i was blowing out to uh, to an insane three or four hours for the for the podcast these days but it's been a great pleasure it's been great to see you again after after three years and hopefully you've got another few weeks with your tour and a couple more weeks in Australia and Tasmania, I think, tomorrow or, or Monday. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we're going to bump into each other. I'll start doing some international touring again. I've been putting it off. Uh, luckily, the COVID's been, sorry, the, my podcast has been sharing the message fairly successfully in these sort of post-COVID times, but it's time to get back up and there's lots of requests for talks. And I'm sure we're going to bump into each other and, have a lot of fun as long as we don't drink as much as we did last night. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Thanks very much. It was a good night, though. Great to catch up. It was a really good night. So thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, thanks very much, Graham. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Okay, so let's look at our rewarding recipe for this episode. But before the sharing, 
I'd like to add some value to a couple of earlier recipes because I found some, some ways to tweak a couple of favourites. Now, a few episodes back, I offered a recipe for producing your own protozoa tea on farm. Now, that can be a really productive strategy because an infusion of these little guys can deliver some pretty cool outcomes. I mean, they're the favourite food of earthworms and there's not much better than witnessing re- the return of these little biofertiliser machines to your soils. They can help you seriously reduce your nitrogen bills because they recycle nitrogen from the bodies of the nitrogen-packed bacteria that they're constantly eating. They help to improve soil structure, they recycle minerals, they kill pathogens, and they're also major root architects and that they release oxen hormones that stimulate root branching. Well, earlier this week, my agronomist Marco shared some exciting reports about a modified version of the protozoa tea that I originally shared. It's actually so logical that I thought, I have to tell you about it. So the idea here is to create a dense brew of bacteria before adding the protozoa-rich leucin or alfalfa if you're from the US and the extra food. Now, the protozoa interns think they've landed in heaven when they're suddenly dropped into a soup of their favourite foods. It's a bit like an Irishman falling into a vat of whiskey, actually. That reminds me of a relevant joke. So, yeah, let's share it. Seem to be a few Irish jokes this time round. Seamus was visiting his old friend Paddy in hospital, and Paddy beckons to his closest friend and tells him his bad news. I've been given the last drinks call, me old mate. They say I have just years to live. I'm wondering if you could help me with a dying wish. Now back at my place, hidden in a cavity at the back of the towel cupboard in the hall, is a precious 30-year-old bottle of single malt Jameson whiskey. I'd like you to make sure that that whiskey is buried with me. Can you promise me that, my old friend? There was silence as Seamus considered the enormity of the waste, and then he responded, Of course, I'll make sure that the precious drop goes to the grave with you. But can I ask you just one thing? Yes, of course you can, said Paddy. Well, said Seamus gingerly, would you mind terribly if I ran it through me kidneys first? (laughs) Okay, so let's look at the amended protozoa tea recipe. Here's how you do it. We're going to look at a 200-litre version of this tea recipe, and that one involves our 200-litre unit, or this one I'm going to tell you about, involves our 200-litre unit called the Brewstar 200, but you can use any kind of do-it-yourself kit as long as it's got a bubbler. So first, add 180 litres of water to the 200-litre unit and then activate the bubbler. Now, Add two litres of LMF, that's liquid microbe food, and two kilograms of vermicompost, or another good quality compost. Now, LMF is a, is a special all-inclusive microbe food that we developed, but you could just use anything or something else like amino acids, sugar, milk, soy meal. Soy meal. You've got to realise that microbes want what we want, which is fats, carbohydrates, and proteins, so all of the things I mentioned are a source of all three. Now, you brew this bacterial tea for 24 hours. Remember, you put in the liquid microfood, the vermicompost, so you've got a food for the many organisms 
present in the vermicompost and for 24 hours you brew in them up. Now you've got a tank full of bacteria and next you add the leucine or alfalfa. And that, of course, that's the protozoa inoculum because that's where they hang out. And you add it at the rate of 1.5%, which is 3 kilograms of leucine hay into a 200 litre drum. The newly introduced protozoa are about to begin their feeding frenzy. At this point, you should also add some more food to the brew in the form of two litres of Nutrisea liquid fish or something similar and two litres of molasses. And that further stimulates your rapidly accumulating protozoa army. Now you brew the protozoa tea for a further two days. So the whole process takes three days now. And then you apply that dense inoculum at the rate of 10 to 20 litres per hectare for liquid injector and broadacre, or 50 to 100 litres in more intensive high dollar value crops. Now the second suggestion for improving a previous recipe was triggered by an email from Robert Berg. Robert's a, a South African rooibos tea producer, and Robert reported good results with one of my do-it-yourself liquid fertiliser recipes. He's been using that recipe at just two litres per hectare on his rooibos crop, Rhoebus, of course, is the medicinal shrub that produces a wonderful caffeine-free, high-antioxidant tea. It's really delicious, particularly when you add a little bit of lemon juice to it. Now, that recipe costs just over a dollar per litre to produce, and it was suggested as a cost-effective broadacre nutrition supplement, and hence the low, affordable application rate. Now, my advice to Robert in this high-dollar-value crop would be to up the rates to around 5 litres, at least 5 litres per hectare, if not 7 litres. I'd also suggest a couple of additions, and that would include tricontinol and a little bit of cobalt and molybdenum. That would create a a truly kick-ass recipe without too much extra expense. If you listen to the cobalt information at the start of this episode, you'll appreciate my logic in including a little bit of this mineral in the mix. You could also boost the performance of this formula by applying my MEND principle, my microbially enhanced nutrient delivery. Uh, And we're talking about putting the microbes behind the minerals. So if you're brewing your own BAM or some other microbial inoculum, it's not going to cost you much to add a 30 cents per litre for BAM to add some of those microbes to magnify the response of the minerals. So here's the 1,000 litre do-it-yourself foliar fertilizer recipe, 100 kilograms of MKP and 800 litres of water, that's the starting point, and then you add 10 kilograms of fulvic acid, soluble fulvic acid powder, then you add 40 kilograms of potassium nitrate, then 40 kilograms of magnesium sulfate, 10 kilograms of manganese sulfate, 10 kilograms of zinc sulfate, 5 kilograms of iron sulfate, 10 kilograms of boric acid, 1 kilogram of sodium molybdate, and 1 kilogram of cobalt sulfate. So when you're applying that mix at at 2 to 3 litres in broadacre and pasture, or 5 to 7 litres in vegetable, vine and orchard crops, you simply add the equivalent of 30 mils of Nutristem tricontinol per hectare to the spray tank. At that's our, that's our tricontinental product. You might have something locally that will do something similar, but ours is particularly good, and I'm going to push that because it is. 
At this point, you could also put the microbes behind the minerals by adding five litres per hectare of brood, BAM, EM, or, or any other microbial mix, and you will be pleased at the crop response. Okay, it's time to move on to our rewarding recipe for this episode. Now, this segment was inspired by a Danish grower called Nicholas Coleman during our recent Zoom consult. Nicholas is one of the new generation of passionate, intelligent young farmers whom are embracing nutrition farming principles across the globe. It's, it's so reassuring to think that our future food production and soil health may be positively impacted by these wonderfully aware new stewards. Nicholas was keen to develop a foliar regime for his upcoming season in Denmark, and he asked for guidance in relation to compatibility issues for do-it-yourself blends. And I thought that this would be a really good opportunity to share that information for the many of you uh, who are wondering what goes with what. So that's what we're going to talk about. Developing a do-it-yourself foliar regime without the headaches. Now, if you had experience in this realm, you'll know about nightmares relative to the blocked filters and the sludge formation that can come when we combine incompatibles in the tank. Most people know, for example, that you can't put calcium and phosphorus or calcium and sulfur together in a tank without forming insoluble calcium phosphate or insoluble calcium sulfate. Nicholas wanted to develop an intensive program based upon deficiencies revealed in his soil and leaf tests. The acid or alkaline status of each input is a really important part of the compatibility equation. So we decided to develop two low pH foliars for monthly application and one high pH foliar to be applied separately, of course. Each month you can put the acid with the alkaline. Then we included a stimulation-based weekly formula. Now this might be too intense for some of you, but it does work really well in intensive agriculture. So once again, I've included some microbes and some biostimulation with each mineral application. So Let's look at these uh, personalised racks. They may not be applicable to your particular soil and crop requirements, but it actually it's, a, it's quite a good generalised program. For example, Nicholas needed some extra potassium and magnesium because they were both deficient. But anyway, here's what we came up with. Like, and, and there'll be principles here that you can apply, so don't think it's not relevant to you. So remember, we're going to do monthly low pH foliars and we decided we'd need two separate monthly acidic foliars. So number one, potassium sulfate at eight, 8 kilograms per hectare, magnesium sulfate at 5 kilograms per hectare, sea change liquid kelp or some other acidic form of liquid seaweed, so not the alkaline uh, potassium hydroxide based kelps but something that's been enzymically extracted or whatever that's acidic. And there's quite a few liquid fertilizers out there. There must be liquid fertilizers that qualify. And four liters per hectare is what you would use. So sea change, in our case, sea change liquid kelp or something similar at four liters per hectare. Manganese sulfate, one kilogram per hectare. Copper sulfate, 500 grams per hectare. Fulvic acid, 700 grams per hectare. This is soluble fulvic acid powder. Cobalt sulfate, 100 grams per hectare and BAM or EM at 5 litres, because both of them are acidic of course, at 5 litres per hectare, 
Or you could add vermicast extract at 10 litres per hectare with that mix. So that's quite a nice low pH starting point that covers most of the trace minerals. But notice that there's no calcium in there for good reason because not, it's not compatible. Now, a wetter sticker or surfactant at label rates would be a good idea. In this case, we would, of course, suggest our cloak spray oil, which is a really effective wetter sticker penetrant based on emulsified organic canola oil with emulsified fish oil containing very high omega-3 and, interestingly, very high iodine components. And we see a nice, almost a fertilizer-type protective response when we include cloak spray oil. So we're going to add BAM or AM at 5 litres and vermicast extract at 10 litres per hectare. Now most of the above are sulfate-based and hence acidic, while the inoculum is also acidic with a pH of 3.5. So BAM has a pH of just 3.5. Now the minerals are all compatible and the fulvic and kelp combination collate these minerals while also serving as plant and microbe stimulants. So that particular mix is designed to be diluted and applied at 400 litres per hectare in small crops or higher rates in an orchard scenario. So that's number one. That's our acidic number one. And now our second low pH foliar uh, for at least a couple of sprays per season. So this is where we're bringing in calcium and the acidic form of calcium as calcium nitrate. So calcium nitrate at three kilograms per hectare. Fulvic acid, 400 grams. Sea change liquid kelp, acidic again, four litres per hectare. Boric acid, the acidic form of boron at 500 grams per hectare, BAM or AM at 5 litres, or vermicast extract at 10 litres per hectare, and of course the wetter sticker or surfactant at label rates, so cloak spray oil if you can source it. Once again, that formula is designed to be applied with 400 litres of water per hectare in intensive horticulture, and it could also be applied successfully diluted in 100 litres per hectare in broadacre crops. The vast majority of leaf tests for cereal and legumes reveal a need for calcium for a calcium boost. Most crops will benefit from a collated calcium foliar spray. It's important to note that the addition of boron with the calcium uh, is really important because boron is such a good calcium synergist. It's also important to note that we chose the acidic rather than alkaline version of boron, as I mentioned because it's better compatibility, so boric acid rather than sodium borate. So that's our two acidic sprays, of course, separating off the calcium and including a few other additives like, like boron in that instance and some kelp. And now we're going to look at our high pH monthly foliar spray. And that's going to be 10 kilograms per hectare of urea, 500 grams per hectare of sodium borate, Humic acid, which of course is alkaline, at 4 litres per hectare. Sodium molybdate, which is also alkaline, at 50 grams per hectare. And potassium silicate, which is super alkaline and compatible with the other components here. Potassium silicate at 2.5 litres per hectare. Now the kelp we're going to include as a collating agent and a biostimulant is not the acidic form. We're going to use tri-kelp, our alkaline kelp powder, at 400 grams per hectare. Tricontinol works with this recipe, so we're going to use 30 mils per hectare, and we're going to use a wetter sticker uh, cloak spray oil if you can source it. So once again, 
we use a minimum of 400 litres in intensive high dollar value crops or higher uh, in the case of orchard crops. And if you're going to put it into broadacre scenarios, you might pull back the dose rates a little bit. Potassium silicate, for example, must be diluted at 1 to 150. So in a broadacre scenario, you're only going to use about 700 mils in 100 litres. All the other components that I mentioned are safe to add at 100 litre per hectare recipe, but um, just depends on whether it's cost cost effective or not. The inclusion of the do-it-yourself form of humic acid, which is what I've suggested here, at four litres, that's you know that's about a dollar fifty per hectare, so it's fairly inexpensive. So, and then of course we said so we've got two acids, one alkaline, and we talked about a general weekly. It's pretty intensive, but this is intensive cropping. So, our weekly general kind of stimulant, um, biostimulant, milk at 2 kilograms per hectare of powdered milk or 12 litres of fresh milk per hectare, Nutri-C liquid fish at 5 litres per hectare or something similar, kelp, the acidic form again at 4 litres per hectare, fulvic acid, 500 soluble fulvic acid powder at 500 grams per hectare, BAM or EM at 5 litres per hectare or, as we said, vermicast extract at 10 litres, where to stick a cloak if you can get it's a great one if you can get it, and 400 litres of water per hectare. Once again, you could halve those rates for a broad acre. Uh, hopefully that gives you some more guidelines if you, if you want to make your own living fertilisers. Just to sum up, acidic inputs should be combined, but that excludes calcium because it reacts with phosphate and sulphates, so we need two separate low pH formulas. The highly alkaline inputs, particularly potassium silicate, react with many things, so we bunch them together. Anything with a sodium base, sodium borate, sodium molybdate, and anything manufactured extracted with potassium hydroxide, like potassium humates, kelp powders, potassium silicate, they'll all react with acidic inputs and clog filters, so you put them together, hence the alkaline spray. Now, that's a really intensive program, but it does really deliver and, you know, you can pull back on that if you like. So, okay, so just one last bit of humour before we wrap up um, this segment. Now, my dad was one of the most determined and reliable men I've ever seen. If he said he was going to do something, he usually did it. I remember a visit home during the great Taranaki flood in the you know, a few years back, and in the morning I awoke to the frightening sight of a flood coursing through the front yard. I watched pieces of fence, chicken coops, branches, and, and an old straw hat floating past with the current. Then I saw the straw hat come back upstream past the house, and then I saw it go downstream again. Pretty soon it came back upstream. It was like this straw hat had a magical mind of its own. And I was starting to wonder if I'd gone crazy. And then I realised what had happened. The previous night before bed, my determined dad said that come hell or high water, I'm going to mow the lawns tomorrow. Okay. Thank you. So, my friends, that brings us to the end of Episode 1 of Series 4 of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. I trust that some of you have found something of value to make your farming more fun, perhaps something to improve the health of yourself or your family, or maybe even a spark to kind of trigger some kind of meaningful change. I'll take this 
opportunity to remind you that Nutritech Solutions, my company, as a resource you're more than welcome to share. There are many of my articles and videos at www.nutritech.com.au. That's Nutritech with a hyphen in between. And we've got a huge range of productive inputs available, many of which I formulated. And that includes things like liquid fertilizers, biostimulants, microbial inoculums, brewing equipment, monitoring tools, humates, fertilizing compost. There's over 200 of these uh, inputs. And we also, of course, offer cutting-edge education. And if you feel that there might be some demand for this information in your region, please let me know, because we might just be able to set up a local seminar. And there's also, if you're, if you're abroad, if you're not in Australia, there's the possibility of webinars, or we can organize a Zoom consult with me if you need some guidance and some problem-solving in your enterprise. People seem to get a lot of value from that. Once again, it's been really good fun to share, and I'll be trying my utmost to ensure that the podcast returns to a more regular schedule. Until next time, happy farming.